Alrighty. Good evening, everyone. How are you? Well, I hope. Also, I'm Batman. I'm Batman for the first 30 seconds or so while I await the arrival of Richard. And this isn't even my best Batman. This summer, I will do a better Batman. Yep. Um, I'm just going to dawdle, and there is Richard. How's it going? Hey, how are you? All right. So, um, how are you commemorating this anniversary that I guess we're all supposed to mark in some fashion? I don't know if we should celebrate it. Or if we should do something more solemn to, to commemorate. I just know we're supposed to commemorate it in some way. Maybe uh, we're supposed to like apologize for something. I'm not even sure. Uh, I think you you might have had a moment of silence before before we started here. So I think that's I think that's sufficient. I lit a um, votive candle. You know, I've seen not that much about the uh, one year anniversary. I haven't seen it like talked about a lot. Have you? Really? I mean, a little. I've bit. seen a. Like, I've seen know, a. I've seen a torrent of stuff. I mean, there's people, like a, a huge barrage of media coverage that's all tied to the one year anniversary that's flooding out right now. You haven't seen that stuff. Who, uh, uh, like people who write about and tweet about the Ukraine war? Yeah. But, like, for example, I went to my iPhone today and it told me March 1st is Women's History Month. This is a new thing I never <laughs> seen before. And I didn't see one year anniversary of the Ukraine war. Uh, but I see all these identity holidays. They well, I mean, it's the 24th that I, I think will be probably seen as the technical anniversary. So tomorrow would probably be, like, the biggest day for it. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, okay, that's right. That's right. Today's the 23rd. Yeah, okay, we still have a day. Technically, the war, the invasion was launched at like 11 p.m. Eastern time on the 23rd, yeah. but are, it was the 24th in Ukraine, so they, I, like they've Orthodox. just decided it's the 24th, yeah. yeah like Orthodox Christmas, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I think, yeah, the date is the time zone that it happens. I think, that, I think, that's, I think that's, that's correct to mention. Yeah, well, I know I'm getting reprimanded and denounced as having been flagrantly wrong because people are, you know, you know, resurfacing a bunch of pre-war uh, tweets and stuff where I'm told that I predicted that Russia would not invade or I was certain that Russia wouldn't invade and I was shown to be dead wrong with that because Russia did invade. And it doesn't matter how many times I say it that I never actually predicted that Russia wouldn't invade because as you know, Richard, like I don't tend to do that sort of prediction style <laughs> analysis because I just find it a bit irritating and just secondarily, it's not what I do as a matter of course. Like it's just my sort of personal, I guess if you want to call it a journalistic philosophy that I don't do it. So, I mean, none of the, none of the stuff that they try to indict me with by supposedly um, ferreting out and resurfacing actually contains any hard predictions about Russia not invading. And they just will say that because, you know, when there were leaks being funneled through the Washington Post or there was even one ridiculous one where the, some sort of false flag uh, 
intelligence leak was first sort of uh, laundered through the British intelligence services and then to the media and then the U.S. like did this whole contrived thing where it, it was then purported that like that intelligence was corroborated because somebody else because it also they also reported on a U.S. version of that intelligence when it was really the U.S. had who had seeded the intelligence through the British in the first place and then they wanted to give the impression of like a second source confirming it. But there was a tons of stuff like that. Of course, there was no quote false flag as had been one of the leaks in the pre-war period. So that wasn't quote correct. Um, and so there were, I mean, th- the point being that there were just obviously legitimate grounds to maintain a skeptical detachment from that fire hose of Intel that was uh, being churned out at that time. I, I still am not, I still don't have like a fully settled conclusion onto what really went on during that pre-war period. But anyway, what, what what's your sort of thinking on that? And are people denouncing you for being wrong with that stuff? Uh, yeah, they. I mean, not recent, not like no, not not around, not recently. Well, I mean, <laughs> it's so funny. I mean, the uh, so I mean, I almost thought there would be a war. I believe that it would happen. Um, so right. yeah, I, I wasn't I wasn't wrong about that. I you know, didn't make a prediction, but a lot of people were. You know, I do remember this time, and I remember a lot of the anti-war people and the people skeptical of American interventions. They were doubtful that it would happen, and then the establishment said, you know, the establishment said that uh, Russia would invade. And you know, in the end, you have to admit that the, uh, the people who said that Russia would invade uh, were correct. Um, and then there was, you know, I think everyone was wrong about. Uh, about sort of Russian success, and I was people, and people were. Uh, can you leave me out of it? I mean, can can I not be roped into this nebulous assemblage ever... called everyone? Okay, no, because presumably everyone. that would have to include me and no, Joe no, Biden and LeBron James and everybody, right? Don't worry, Ben Carson. Do you remember Ben Carson, the Ben Carson of the debate? <laughs> of course. Do I remember Ben Carson? No, but do you remember? You know why I'm saying Ben Carson right now? He goes, "You mentioned me." And he says, he said everybody. And I, you know, whatever. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When he was like being pretty much ignored because he was like the straggler at the end of the stage. Yeah. Uh, no, he wasn't. I think he, I think there were bigger stragglers than Ben Carson. But, but at, that, at, that, at that stage, though, I think in the primaries, he was like not a viable candidate. Yeah. So he was like right at the edge of the stage, if I recall correctly. Um, but no, nobody, I mean, nobody's really. Um, I think that I, you know, I, but the only thing I've been talking about about right on Twitter is I just. You're can can you uh, you're you're sort of you're a bit like you're it's sounding like it's a it's muffled going in and out. Let me uh, let me turn. Yeah, yeah. Whatever you're doing now is good. Okay, no, I think I put my finger on the phone. Um, The uh, um, no, I've been making fun of people. (laughs) The the East Palestine thing. Have you seen this? They're like Biden could go to Kiev. Yeah, East Palestine. It's like so stupid. So I I just been. Like people have been like are uh, like attacking me for that, but it's just it's just so incredibly dumb. Like I don't care if people are pro pro aid to Ukraine, anti aid to Ukraine. I just find this line of argument just like so tedious, so like overwhelmingly stupid that I just like keep pointing out how like stupid that is. So people get mad about that. Uh, but no, besides that, I have besides a substantive fun. argument that's like, oh, the optics look bad that Biden is in, or like the optics. We object to the optics of this. It's not like there's really a well. They're also the, objection. the same people are talking about secession right now, so they're used to like, <laughs> like, and they're like, so Biden won't visit us, and like, give oh, us please. The money. <laughs> they're like, did you read the Marjorie Taylor Greed? Uh, 
uh, tweet thread. It was like a blog. It was like it was like you know now with Twitter Blue you can like write like a blog. So it's like a thread. That's like a blog. Like each you know each uh, tweet hmm. was like you know like a blog. no. I didn't know she did a full blog. Yeah, no, she did like ten like tweets, and each one's like yeah, each one's like longer than a normal tweet, and it's just so stupid. Um, and I mean, ignore that stuff. I mean, I, I remember after the 2012 election, right? So the election that we don't even really look back on as a particularly momentous election, which, you know, Obama getting reelected by, you know, a narrow but ultimately comfortable margin over Mitt Romney. So not like the most seismic ideological gulf in today's political terms anyway. And I remember after that, there were like houses across the south that would were like fl- uh, flying black flags in front of their houses I mean, in other words they were like displaying black as though they were so uh, doomsaying about america that they were like withdrawing from the social compact and and you know uh, and rick perry went to some like texas independence rally and said something about Secession, where he didn't quite endorse it, but it was close enough that it made a whole fuss. And there's a provision in the Texas Constitution that technically, under certain circumstances, may allow for Texas to secede from the Union, and it's the only state that has this, that has this provision. And blah 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 blah. And just it's it's just an emotional outburst. I mean, it doesn't actually amount to anything. So I mean, I just yeah. inclined well, to just, just ignore it because this one is not a this is not an election. It's just sort of out of random nowhere. This one crazy congresswoman just starts saying, you know, we're gonna. The theme and here because they have a drag queen story hour. <laughs> really, just the pettiest, stupidest stuff ever. So yeah, I just I, you know, there's they're harassing Pete Buttigieg. There's this one. Uh, you know, wait, wait, what is Marjorie Taylor Greene saying is actually going to bring about this secession? Is she saying Georgia is going to secede the same it's Georgia even, that voted for Biden? Well thought out. It's like we need a national. We need a national divorce. And no, she doesn't introduce a bill. Or say, I'm no, but I'm saying, like, what is she talking? Is, is it going to be like a state-based secession, like during the Civil War? Because it, she she represents Georgia, and Georgia uh, voted for Joe Biden last I checked in 2020. Yeah, that's a good point. Georgia did vote for Biden uh, twice. Yeah, I yeah. don't know which side they would be on. Maybe because of the governor, yeah, Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, secession. Let me let me uh, national divorce. You're right. Like, where where are they? I, you know, it's not even it's not even it's not even that well thought out. There's no geography of it, right? It's not like us southern states have to do things, and you know, the northern states or like the city of the cities are all liberal. No, it's not even it's not even like that. It's just like you know, it's a talking point to get on cable news. I mean, that's all it is. And these people are just fundamentally, you know, just unserious. Um, yeah, or blow up on social media, which is probably good enough for Marjorie Taylor Greene. I mean. <laughs> I wouldn't just dismiss her outright and in every respect because, like, she is enough of an eccentric where she does land on a few taboos that are worth breaking every now and then that even, you know, most Republicans wouldn't wouldn't touch. So I don't think she's, like, just a total lunatic who should just be 100% ignored under all circumstances. Oh, but, yeah, she isn't clear. Oh, and, and, by, and, and by the way, Georgia voted for uh, Biden in 2020, but it, it voted for Trump in 2016, and that's why there was such a oh, yeah, yeah. fevered no, focus wait. on Georgia as like the locus of the election fraud scheme or whatever. Yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah, they have two senators. Yeah, two Democratic senators. That's right. Yeah, yeah. This is so funny. No, like, I just went to her Twitter account. I can't even find the original thread because oh, here's the original thread because she retweeted it. But like everything now, like she's like going with this story. She's like she's she's going with this thing. It's something she thinks about a lot. So she's like, every tweet. Is about her like promoting this idea on TV or like elaborating on it. Um, 
you know, say so we left cramming they're forcing their way on us with our you know children and our traditional values and economic and government policies yeah it's like they you know they don't have energy they have bad energy policy they send money to ukraine they don't protect our borders you know the states should decide education no it doesn't say like we the southern states are gonna track queen's yeah, it's just like a mishmash of her standard grievances that now i guess are so no. intolerable that it if she secedes from the union, wouldn't I mean? Would she still remain in Congress because she'd be part of a different country? So she would resign okay, her so seat, I guess. She does seem to be saying states. So she says red state schools would bring back prayer in school, require every standard, every security <laughs> for the national anthem, and pledge of allegiance. Which doesn't blue state. So is she going to move to a new state? While blue states would likely eliminate the anthem pledge altogether and replace them with the anthems and pledges of identity ideologies like trans flag and BLM. Perhaps some blue states would even likely have government-funded anti-anti-communist training schools. <laughs> I mean, elected Democrats. Are, yeah, very serious. You know, very serious proposal. The next one is about girls' sports. Like they won't have the red states won't have trans and girls' sports. And yeah, okay, because you know, girls' track is going to be the basis of. They're going to put trans of trans women in sports you're, in you're the Constitution. Right. Anyone, that's such a smart point about Georgia being. I'm used to. We're used to Georgia being a. Uh, Red state, but yeah, I didn't, I didn't even think of that. Like, have you seen anyone bring that up? That's a pretty good. I, 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 pretty I've, good I've not followed whatever discourse is happening around this because it's just so irrelevant and stupid that I'd rather focus on like. I'm I'm more immersed in actual important issues that I don't need to have like a whole digression into Marjorie Taylor Greene's you know blog, but yeah, I mean, remember the whole thing with Herschel Walker where that was such a media sensation when he was running for Senate. I mean, is that now just a distant memory? I, he lost, <laughs> and the Democrat won in Georgia. Yeah. So if but, she's saying, but, like, red states, if she's saying, red, like, there's this giant gulf between red states and blue states, she's she in thinks, a blue state. Well, maybe she thinks, well, maybe she thinks, I mean, the legislature in Georgia is, uh, and the governor are Republican. So maybe, you know, the senator is not going to decide her the who have won the president in 2020 is not going to decide georgia right it would be state government so let's give mtg uh you know the benefit of the doubt no i don't give her the benefit of the doubt when when in common parlance <laughs> when you talk about red states and blue states you're talking okay so i mean if you're going to secede who's gonna Mar- maryland maryland had a had a republican governor until january not not a legislator though i mean the the, the who they voted for in 2020 is not going to buy like that doesn't mean biden gets to pick you know what kind of state it is it would be the state got this is so stupid we're discussing this like yeah, I know. <laughs> you know this is actual like she doesn't have a plan but if someone was going to secede it wouldn't be who they voted for in 2020 right it would be it would be the governor and the legislature doing it yeah it's just you know when so like Obama burst onto the political scene when he gave his quote red states and blue states speech in 2004 the Democratic convention right um, when he was the keynote speaker and then of course he won the nomination four years later he was talking about red states and blue states in terms of what party the states vote for in presidential elections and that's the you know always the common understanding of what constitutes a red state and blue state if you do want to use that shorthand sort of cliched way of referring to states. Um, so, I mean, I, I don't know. Who cares? Because it's so stupid. It's just like an outburst. Yeah. yeah. yeah what, what, what precipitated it? What precipitated, like, a glory around secession right now? Nothing. I don't get it. She's just like, yeah, this is what's funny. Yeah, it's nothing. It was just, like, sort of out of nowhere. There's just, like, I've, I've been thinking, and this is, you know, I guess, what well, you know, what it's like boomer posting, right? It's like these people just, they have big ideas. But no, it's not. It doesn't have a. It doesn't have like you know. You'd say like a news hook, right? 
Uh, it's just right. why, why the left and right should consider a, a national divorce. Not a civil war, but a legal agreement to separate our ideological bi-states while maintaining our legal union. Okay, so you just, you just say um, bi-states. Um, yeah, so no, no there's, there's, there's nothing. It's just... It's just a you know a brain fart. Well, and, and of course, I mean it's so it's it's doubly stupid because anybody who's like traveled modestly widely throughout the United States knows that there's lots of variation within states themselves. So, like, is Austin, Texas, going to be in favor of Texas overall seceding? I mean, you're in other words, if you do this secession plan by state, you're still including within your now. You know, vaunted red states, these uh, islands of the liberal ideology that you want to divorce from. So what's the point? I guess within each state, the majority would get to enforce its will, right? So I guess in Texas, they would uh, force Austin to do Republican things. And then in, you know, Oregon or whatever, they force the rural areas to do liberal things. That's not, you know, that's not that bad of an idea. Uh, that, you know, that's not, that's, not, that's not what's fatal to this. Um, you know, because that's like, you know, that's how secession would work. You know, in the South, like, when the South seceded, I mean, when any country secedes, some minority, right, is not going to necessarily mm-hmm. like it. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the problems with this, it's, it's like, it's like stupid. I mean, it's not going to go anywhere. And it's just amazing how petty the, you know, the grievances are. I mean, they really are petty. Like, this is not the stuff you fight civil wars over. And, like, nobody's going to do anything about it anyway, right? I mean, it, and there's no legal mechanism to do this. I mean, it's just like a, you know, I just, I just have contempt for this kind of politics. Um, and so, yeah, I've been paying attention to that on Twitter, although that's not the best. The best. I don't know. It seems like, you know, we're um, lurching closer to world war. So that's occupied a bit more of my attention. I want, one thing I wanted to ask you about, or I want to run past you because we were, we were talking about the, um, this whole idea that, Everyone believed that Kiev would fall in three days and everyone was wrong because Ukraine was so resourceful and um, plucky and defied all expectations. And that, that whole talking point, which gets repeated ad nauseum, um, I actually just saw, I was just read a transcript of an appearance that uh, Victoria Newland made today with the Washington Post uh, columnist David Ignatius. And even she repeated this where she says everyone thought that Kiev was going to fall in a matter of days. Well, does that everyone include Victoria Newland? I mean, doesn't she have like privileged information that if it was so wildly off that this was going to happen, that she would not then be part of this blob of everyone and that she would have known that Ukraine was going to be so Are triumphant? I don't know. It's just weird. How, how, how... Why, why, why is that weird? She says everyone and then she's including her. So why wouldn't she be including herself? Well, I, I, I don't think she is. She's just referring to this nebulous everyone, and I don't even think she is including herself because it's just like a why talking you, point now. Why do you think she's not including herself? Did she say everyone she, except I mean, me, Victoria Newland, and I understood something else? Well, well, no, but she doesn't like give a personal testament to how she believes such woeful falsehoods. Like, it's not clear that she's including herself, even though she's referring to this notion of everyone i mean it's and the, the point is it's just like a talking point okay yeah i don't, I don't um, know what you're why you're i mean i don't know what you're uh, well yeah, but, but here's but here's what i wanted to mention about it um okay. okay so a lot of this originates in a briefing that was given by mark milley the general mark milley the chairman of the joint chiefs of staff to congress on february 5th of 2022 right and he seems to have put 
at uh, a bit of a more dire spin in this briefing to one of the scenarios that he was briefing as a possibility than seemed to have been the case when the scenario was suggested as a possibility elsewhere throughout the government. So even if Mark Milley did make a more dire prediction or a dire, give a dire assessment, because it wasn't really a prediction, it's more of an assessment, it's not clear that that was the consensus and therefore quote, everyone believed it, but leave that aside, okay? Mark, Mark, February 5th, he gives this briefing, right? I just came across something that I thought I would have picked up on at the time, but for whatever reason I missed it. In May of 2022, okay, Milley testifies before the Senate at a hearing, and he's asked about these assessments that were given, including partially by him, pre-war. And he says a version of the following, that, yeah, that was one of our assessments that we were briefing in January and early February, but what happened in the interim, and I'll read you the quote, because I'm, I'm curious what you think of this, or if you've ever heard anything along these lines, because I'm embarrassed to admit that it was new to me, and it's something like I feel like I should have known. Here's the, the, the quote from Millie, okay? This is, uh, sorry. Uh, oh, geez. I lost it. Give me two seconds, and I'll finish my train of thought. Okay, uh, May 3rd, 2022, Senate testimony, okay? Here's what Millie says, quote, In terms of predictions, those were early assessments and more as a dynamic interaction between competing wills. So between those predictions that you heard in early February and January, a lot of things happened on the battlefield in preparation prior to the invasion on the 24th, not the least of which is an intelligence flow from the United States, and that made a significant difference in outcomes, okay? So what I'm, what I'm hearing in that is that Millie is saying some, between February 5th and February 24th, the United States initiated some sort of new intelligence operation in Ukraine in anticipation of an invasion, and he's saying that actually made a significant difference in the battlefield outcomes. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's one of these, that's one reason why, like, this idea that you know, everyone believes such and such I feel like obscures or is being used to obfuscate some of the actual history, uh, historical record here that I would still like to have better clarity. Well, so why? So why? Because they say they thought that Kiev would fall, and you're saying that they gave them intelligence. So what, why? Why is that inconsistent? One thing inconsistent with the other. They wanted. They they thought Kiev would probably fall soon. Um, they didn't want it to happen, so they took steps to try to stop it. Well, what's 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 strange about that? Because Millie's indicating here that given the intelligence flow operation, which could mean a lot of different things, right, but something was initiated militarily or with the, uh, at least a military component, or there was some sort of, you know... Um, intelligence sharing. No, we, we, we knew there was intelligence sharing. I no, mean, I, I, no I, I mean, no, not really. I mean, not, not to... I mean, the, the, the scope of intelligence sharing, such as it exists... Has only was only really reported as the war went on, and like there would be like new bits and pieces of its features that were reported. I mean, we still don't know the half of it. I'm sure um, we don't okay. know exactly what he's referring to that was operationalized uh, sometime in February. Okay. Um, 
So, I mean, so, but, but I guess the point is, if Millie, if I'm here, uh, understanding Millie correctly here, and I would, of course I would like more detail, if Millie is saying that his assessment as to the viability of Ukraine's military against Russia changed over the course of February and his, the, the, the prospects in his mind improved in part as a result of this hugely significant intelligence operation that was launched, then even he, even then, Millie was did not one of these people who, who he, believed that it would fall in three days. I mean, he just did he say, did he say that his, his assessment changed over the course of February? Yes. In that quote you read, I didn't, I didn't, well, yeah, I don't yeah. remember, he says, I didn't between those predictions that you heard in early February and January, uh-huh. meaning, uh, including his, if you want to call it a prediction, quote, a lot of things happened on the battlefield in preparation prior to the invasion on the 24th, not the least of which is an intelligence flow from the United States, and that made a significant difference in outcomes. He's, so he's, in retrospect, he's not saying at the time we believe uh, that, you know, so they had this assessment, and you're saying they had a different assessment and after they started helping? Well, yeah, yeah, well you know, here's a clear... Let's say it did. Let's say it did. What is it about? Well, like, what's the, I don't get it. I don't get what's like... The, 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 I don't get because then it wasn't just a matter of like Ukraine being especially plucky yeah, as to why these... Pre- Ukraine. Okay. The US, the, well, the U.S. told Ukraine, told the world that Russia was going to invade. So we know that, right? Like that must have helped in some way. If like Ukraine had, a, if, like, Ukraine had more of a suspicion that Russia, even though they didn't believe them completely, if they had some suspicion that Russia was going to invade, like everyone knew that, right? And so it's like, it doesn't mean that the U.S. didn't help at all, right? Like, nobody said that. It's like, it's a couple things can be true. Like, there was this, uh, Russia launched this war, and people thought that Kiev would fall, and Ukraine fought better than expectations, and like, you know, and, you know, showed more, uh, uh, you know, showed more will to fight than people thought they would, and the U.S. helped them. Not all, none of that is, like, consistent with any, inconsistent with anything else. Uh, I don't think it's consistent in the sense that what I read from this quote is that Milley seems to be denying that, you know, on the 24th, he was of the view that Kiev was bound to be uh, seized within I, three days. He act because of the information that he had about the, uh, impressively vast or, you know, uh, impactful scope of whatever this intelligence operation was. I, I, I don't think that's clear from that quote, but I also don't think, I don't think it matters either. I mean, like, what did he think? Maybe in, like, the end of February, he thought it, like, instead of three days, it would be, like, a month, right? We don't have any reason to think, like, he thought. But it does matter. Were... It does matter because because when that, when that point is made, when that refrain is repeated about how, quote, everyone believed it, that also is supposed to be referring to the U.S., which had, you know, so severely underestimated Ukraine's potential as far as we're being told. And if, but if in reality they had actually operationalized some sort of intelligence, you know, um, system that bolstered Ukraine significantly and improved in, in the minds of whoever was running that program, the, the fortunes of Ukraine, then that, that's a much different story than like Ukraine just kind of being like left out in the, uh, in the dark. And then it just had to kind of, scramble to to exceed all expectations in this like heroic independent okay. way well i mean you you read that quote to me twice i did i i don't think it's clear from that quote that it within the month that billy changed his 
uh, estimation, but let's, I mean, let's say he did. And, you know, it was like, he, like Millie in February 2020, or February 1st, 2022, thought Ukraine would last for three days. And by February 24th, he thought it would last for a month. Um, like, okay. Like, or he okay, didn't he think it would, or he didn't think Kiev would fall as, as right, but we, don't, we, don't have, we, don't have evidence, we don't have evidence of that. We, right. He does he doesn't, he certainly doesn't say that he, he changed his mind and thought by February 24th that Kiev wouldn't fall. He certainly doesn't say that. So we have no reason to assume that that, I mean, he's saying that. Um, so like, so it's like the point, I mean, the Voyager point people are making is that like everyone thought, like everyone, not, not Michael Tracy, but like most people thought who make predictions that Kiev would fall in a short period of time. Like, you know, nobody, they said could in three days, by the way, like not everyone said, you know, they, maybe they change it now to like, you know, everyone thought it would in three days, but like, like at the time people were saying could in three days, but whatever. I mean, the point is like, they want to tell the story where like Ukraine exceeded all expectations. Well, right. That's the point. It's propaganda, <laughs> but it's propaganda. So it doesn't actually, it doesn't, it's true propaganda. It's not, it is. How is it true propaganda? Because the 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 point is that you uh, people thought Kiev would fall, but, but, but people thought. I mean, what does that mean? I mean, right. so wouldn't it be significant? I mean, so if people thought in the sense that the the, the belief was so widespread that it was like ubiquitous, which would oh. seem to be implied by this construction, everyone thought, then I would need some evidentiary basis to think that you know. I don't know, Joe Biden or Anthony Blinken or senior members of the State Department or Pentagon or high-ranking members of Congress, all of whom were like these ardent hawks talking about how Ukraine was going to prevail and they needed our help right away and we had to send these weapons. I would need some evidence of like the how widespread the belief supposedly was within that segment of like the decision-making apparatus because one one theory that I'm kind of – beginning to think probably does correspond with reality was after that f- first wave of leaks around the Millie briefing um, that, 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 that was leaked. It almost certainly seems by Republican hawks in Congress to put pressure on Biden to be more proactive in uh-huh. preemptively arming or fortifying Ukraine in some fashion. And I don't know, this is speculation because I don't have the firm evidence. I, I wouldn't report this as the absolute truth, but it, it seems pr- possible, uh, even plausible that the leak did, given the direness of it, help spur like an acceleration of some, you know, pr- uh, programs by the U.S. that were maybe kept classified, or or at least weren't disclosed. That um, you know were, were already underway through February, um, which well, I, I mean, would like to know if it's true or not. I mean, yeah, I mean, maybe. I mean, so everyone, everyone knows. Okay, so. The U.S. says it, right? Ukraine, there was quotes from Ukraine. I read it right at the time. Government officials saying, you know, there's no way we can hold out, right? So there's, Ukraine was said it at the time. Russia, I mean, we talked about You said Russia. the U.S. said it. What does that mean? I mean, did Joe Biden say it? He's the president. I mean, these, these briefings, to the, 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 Miley brief, the Milley briefing. But it was, but that's the thing. It was one of a potential range of scenarios that Milley briefed at one meeting and then was selectively leaked by Republican hawks who wanted to use it to put pressure on Biden so to accelerate the arms like, pro- provision so you program. Think he might have said like Kiev falls in three days, or or Kiev never falls. Like that's the range. Like because that would be that would well, be right. Because there's a range of <laughs> that would be like everything. There, <laughs> that would not be a range. But but the, but they put out a range of different assessments within like assigned probabilities to them. It's not like this was the 
they were saying that this was the absolute metaphysical certitude of the outcome. I think the U.S. at the time, they had an incentive to, you know, you say they had, maybe they had, some hawks had an incentive to, but it wasn't just Republican hawks. I mean, this was something that uh, administration officials were telling people. This this leak just happened to go to Fox. Well, okay, this leak, this leak, but you look at the other things that um, people uh, people in the administration, top officials were saying to other news sources. I don't think it was all just Republican officials. There's no no reason to think that. Right, but they were all saying the same thing. Nobody was saying like, oh, secretly, you know, us and the Pentagon, we think Ukraine is going to win. Like nobody was – like there's no story like that. So we didn't see that. Um, We did – and we didn't – and it would have been like – I think they would have had an incentive, if anything, to say Ukraine was going to fight because like to say Ukraine has no chance – I mean, that really like, you know, how's, you know, Ukraine probably, that's probably bad for morale. I can imagine that being a very, you know, like if I was thinking like, what would they do? Like if they wanted Ukraine to fight, if they wanted Russia not to succeed, I I would think they would say that it's going to be tough for Russia. I don't think they want Russia and Ukraine to think it's just going to be a cakewalk for Putin. I mean, that's like, that that seems like it would encourage him to be more likely to invade. So I I tend to believe it. And then we talked about the Russians and how they... Uh, how they acted. Um, they certainly acted like, you know, they were going to exert their will on Ukraine. And, uh, you know, this is everything from the planning to not telling like every, anybody like before the invasion to, um, uh, to, uh, you know, having few troops and sending them to all the, uh, across all these different fronts. So it seemed like Russia thought that, you know, they were going to get a, at least a regime change. Um, so I do, I mean, I have no problem thinking everyone, you know, like everyone, like the U S government plus the Russian government, um, you know, plus probably like most European governments, I'm guessing, I don't have direct evidence of those, uh, thought that the Ukrainians, that Kiev would fall, the Ukrainians would lose. And then that didn't happen. And then like, fine, like, that's just like a piece of propaganda. And they exaggerated now. They're like, oh, it was always just three days. And like, maybe not, it wasn't technically three days. But like, the basic story of this propaganda is like, correct. It's like, it's something happened. And like, you know, some of the details are sort of not being told in the exact way. But like, the, the broader idea is, is right. So like I don't know why you're, like you're, you're fighting. Well, I, I don't think I don't because I don't think the broader idea is right. I really don't. I mean, I've I was told by someone, and I mentioned this to you, who's in a position to know, who was you know intimately involved in those pre-war assessments, oh, yeah. who said that there was no one in the field who believed that Kiev would be would fall in three days with fall okay, meaning your, your be the site of you, Russia achieving its full military. Your, your guy said, but your guy said, which you quoted to me that there was uh the Kiev would fall soon, right? It wasn't three days. No, no, he, he no, no, he not. There was no prediction made on his part that a fall would happen. It's that it was predicted that And here's another thing that gets conflated, right? Which is, you know, understandable if you're trying to fashion a self-glorifying propaganda narrative, but not if you want to actually be tethered to facts. There's a conflation of the Ukraine military reaching Kiev, right, or reaching the outskirts or encircling it or partially encircling it and seizing it or, you know, taking over control of Kiev in some fashion, right? And they did reach Kiev within like a day or two. That doesn't also doesn't matter for like you think that Russia wanted it doesn't matter Russia wanted to occupy Kiev or have like a regime change where like they had a new guy come in and do what they wanted Zelensky do like what's the point the point is they they get their they reach at least like to the outskirts of Kiev and get their war aims that's the point 
right? You, you think that that's a big difference, like whether people thought this or that? It's like, no, Russia would just win. I mean, that, like nobody like said, okay, at 6.4 days, like, you know, Russia is going to enter Ukraine. Like nobody, no, nobody claims to know that. Like if they could have gotten to the outskirts of the city and like Zelensky could have surrendered, right? That, that would have like fulfilled the, the condition. I mean, the, the, just the, the, the narrative, which is, a, again, a true narrative, is Russia was going to invade. It was going to, within a short period of time, maybe a, you know, three days, maybe a week, maybe a month, um, was going to exert its will on, on Kiev, which means taking the capital or, um, and by the way, I do think Russia was trying to take the capital by force. I mean, they went down that road. There was this highway they went down and the Ukrainians kept like, you know, blowing up their tanks. And so they, they made it to the outskirts and were trying to, clearly trying to get into the city. Uh, but even if they weren't and just wanted to like, Zelensky to come out and with a white flag and say, okay, I'll do what you guys want from uh, from now on. Um, you know, like that was people, what people thought would happen. Like Russia would exert its will, let's get to Kiev and exert its will. And that just didn't happen. They were forced back. And like, okay, that's just the, the propaganda narrative. And that's that's true. Every part of that is true. And it's like, this is just, this seems quibbling. Okay, okay hold, but, but hold on. Let me, okay, so let me just give you, so I, I want to know how many counterexamples would I have to give to at least undercut in any in some sense this idea that everyone believed this thing well, show that me told. somebody from february 20th. here I, I got you i got you here i, I have it right here i saw it okay. earlier today because i was researching something this is the foreign minister of ukraine kuleba who i actually saw at the um munich security conference a few days ago he's yeah. he had a joint press availability with blinken on february 22nd okay and he says that in the event of a russian attack the, fan, the, the plan is to, quote, fight for every inch of our land in every city and every village to fight until we win, of course. So, I mean, are you, are you, are you telling me that he privately believed that actually Kiev would fall in three days and that was just a nonsense? Maybe. People, I'd like to see the, evidence of that, though, because you have to go by like, what's in the public record in, in the as well. context, people were talking about Russia taking Kiev and then there being a guerrilla warfare. So that's, that's consistent with a guerrilla warfare strategy. I mean, that's completely consistent with that. You know, they would come, we'd fight for every inch, and we'd eventually win. That, that's convincing. He doesn't say Kiev won't. He doesn't even say, like, you would expect the foreign minister to say Kiev won't fall. Like, you would expect him not to say, you know, we're going to lose badly. Um, but, like, he didn't even, you know, he didn't even say, like, you know, we're going to keep Kiev. So it's like, okay, so, okay, so that's one. Like, okay, show me, like, uh, you know, that's, like, the most, you know, the most uh, person who has the most incentive to say, um, you know, we're going to, you know, we're going to be able to hold out. And even that, I don't think that qualifies. But no, show me some buddy in the intelligence or show me British or like French news reports from, you could find me a news report from France or England uh, that says, um, or Germany or whatever that, um, that said that uh, Russia wouldn't be able to take Kiev or wouldn't be able to get its way. I'll, I'll take it if there's evidence of that. I, okay. You know, I will, uh, I will search for that because I got to believe I'll be able to find pretty quickly something to that effect from like okay, Poland you're, you're or from, the Baltic okay. States. Um, yeah, but, but anyway, but let's just let okay. But let, okay, let's 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 leave that aside. Um, Did you read the, the for, for, uh, financial? Yeah, yeah. I was just going to bring that up. You, you want to summarize that for people? Uh, so it's basically it's based. It's a long report in the Financial Times. It's based, it says it's based on like six people close to the Kremlin. So quite. Bad. I mean, I'm a little wary about some of the. <laughs> go ahead. Yeah, six people close to the close to Putin, or six people around the Kremlin, and then a bunch of American and you know, Western officials, too, on top of that. And, you know, the, the big takeaways is, okay, it's reinforcing the idea that um, uh, uh, Putin is, you know, isolated. A lot of the stuff we've heard before, like he has that one physicist friend who during COVID just hung out with him in his dacha um, and, like, talked to him about, like, historical greatness. 
and like he was really into this like we've heard this was like a, there was a, a, Wash, uh, a wall street journal profile of this guy um many months ago so that that's you know lavrov they say i this is the first time i heard this lavrov didn't know about the invasion until, yeah i was gonna bring that up like a few uh, hours the, before the board, yeah the morning of and three days earlier or two days earlier or something the he had, lavrov had been in a meeting asking uh where putin was asking people you know what to do about the um recognizing Donetsk and Luhansk. so like he didn't say i'm gonna invade right so he like you know so this was interesting but then the nuclear weapons thing is the you know there's a lot of other stuff but then the nuclear weapons stuff is the most um is the most important and, and for this one they they say two of their sources so two of their six sources uh, say this uh that basically he gamed out that you know it wouldn't make sense for him to use nuclear weapons um, but basically, there would be radiation, there would be fallout, um, and he gave this out, and it's probably not going to do it. And he, what he's going to, what Putin is going to try to do, is outlast the West, which he thinks, you know, doesn't care about Ukraine war uh, as much as he does. So that's 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 that, those are the most important things I took from the article. Uh, anything, Dad? Yeah, I mean, the tenor of this article and the way certain th- certain the way it's framed and worded causes me to just doubt the veracity and just a sort of overall sense. I'm not denying, I'm not saying the article's wholly fabricated, right? But if you're talking about like six long-time Putin confidants, I mean, that's sort of, I, I, I don't know. I mean, that, there, it, it's, it's easy, it would be easy to overstate to what extent any one of those people are like confidants in the sense that they had, like they've had, you know, they could have been like an advisor of his from 2001 to 2003 or something, and then they get called a confidant, and then they're just speculating about stuff, and then that's sort of reported as though it's like direct firsthand experience with Putin in the past year that kind of gives some sort of concrete insight into what his thinking is or what his what actions he took. So, but, you know, and, and then like, here's how they like basically frame the entire article, right? The article was presented as a tale of, quote, how Putin doubled down, uh, how Putin blundered his way into the invasion, then doubled down rather than admit his mistake. So, I mean, what does that mean? Is this like an op-ed? I'm not saying everybody has to be objective in journalism, right? But like this is supposedly a news article in a very sort of um, estimable publication. And it's just like asserting somehow on like, I don't know, normative grounds that it, it was, the invasion itself was, quote, a mistake. I don't even know what that means necessarily. Obviously, you can make that argument, but why are they like smuggling that argument in here? I mean, they don't even think it's an argument, apparently. It's just supposed to be like self-evidently true, evidently true that it's like in every respect a, quote, mistake. I, I don't know. It's just like a weird, it's just sort of a, uh, it just reflexively causes me to have a bit of suspicion about the veracity of it. But let's just assume that the Lavrov thing is true, right? Because that's an interesting tidbit. Um, and the and the, what's reported is that like you know uh, just a mere few hours before the invasion was actually fully initiated, Lavrov received a phone call informing him that this was going to ha- going to happen, and he was shocked. Right, so um, he genuinely would not have known. That means that a lot of the Russian officials then who gave the denials in the run up to the war that the that invasion would happen actually weren't lying. Um, or or weren't ac- weren't conscious or didn't have like actual knowledge themselves that a war would happen and trying to spin or anything. Maybe they didn't know one way or another, but in any event, it seems like they actually weren't informed. So it kind of, um, <laughs> in a way, absolves some of the Russian officials who 
it, it probably would have been reasonably assumed were just actively lying when they had denied, like, even just days before the invasion that any invasion was going to happen. But, I, but here's, like, the more, like, epistemological question that I wanted to put to you. So if even Lavrov, okay, the foreign, the longtime foreign minister, and you know, the staple of Russia's public diplomacy, you know, for years and years, if he, he even he genuinely did not know until a few day, a few hours before, then I don't understand how people who did not just join, hop on the bandwagon and say, you know, uh, within, like, uh, ahead of the invasion, that an invasion was obviously going to happen, that they were wrong. If we don't, if we have every reason to think that a final decision, or we don't, uh, it could well be that a final decision was literally made within hours of the invasion actually being initiated, right? So if no final decision, so let's just stipulate, okay? Let's say when Lavrov heard about it, that's when the final decision was made. So literally on the 24th, if on the 23rd you saw, yeah, the Russian troops massing on the border but said, look, we don't have evidence that an invasion actually is actually going to commence yet. We need to you know, w- wait for evidence or we don't know for sure that something is going to happen, then I don't, I don't know that those people are necessarily – and I'm not just trying to like cover my own ass either. I think like genuinely, if you look at it rationally, those people ought not to be rendered – in, uh, as having been incorrect, because they were correct at, actually at the time that there was not any kind of settled any reason to have like to, to view it as an absolute certainty that an invasion was going to happen because it was still contingent even then. Um, and nor is it necessarily the case that when you know, the Biden administration did all these leaks, that they necessarily knew for a fact or that it was like preordained, written in stone that an invasion was, happen- was going to happen. Because maybe, for all we know, if, especially if the decision was really made that late, you know, when they were doing these leaks, like let's say on February 10th or something, that an invasion was absolutely going to happen, that they were wrong because they didn't have basis to, to disseminate that statement because no decision had been officially made yet. So I don't know, I just... I, I, I get hung up on this phase of the whole fiasco here because I just think there's still a, a lot of uh, uncertainty and um, lack of detail as to how the whole trajectory actually uh, shook out. Yeah, I mean, no, I don't know. <laughs> like, it's a big coincidence if, you know, they said he's going to invade and then he invades, but he he wasn't going to, you know, he only made that decision. Like, maybe. Like, I, I don't know what they exactly they said, you know, it's uh I remember there was times where, like, they said at some point they Biden would say, uh, you know, they haven't decided yet. And then at some point he said Putin did decide. And I don't know. I don't remember exactly when that was. But it was like, you know, I remember it did transition from one point from, you know, they haven't decided to, to he has decided. And I don't know, like, you know, just because that's what he informed Lavrov. That means that's when he made the decision. That's, you know, that's there's, you know, that's I wouldn't assume that that could be truer uh, or not. Um you, uh, by the way, you were fighting with uh, Pat, uh, this Patrick Porter guy. Yeah. Twitter, right? <laughs> he's like, seems like, a, you know, I knew this guy when I used to write more on uh, international relations. Oh, really? He's yeah, he's an academic guy. Um, yeah, I know, I know who he is. All right, I'm, I have familiarized myself with him. I, you know, I've, uh, I've followed him for uh, a little while now and seen some of his appearances. So I, 
I knew I know who he is even before. I knew who he was even before this little exchange today. Yeah, and he said people warned him that you were someone who argues in bad faith, and now he's and now he has seen through you. Yeah, I don't really get that because <laughs> because you know because. Uh, I mean, he he actually initiated the exchange with me. I mean, believe it or not. I mean, I don't know. I don't know why you would find that hard to believe, but just for you know, whatever it's worth. Um, and you know, so at one point, I would just ask him because, like, he's always trying to. You know, he's like, he's like, seems to be taking or like to think of himself as taking some sort of middle ground where he'll say, you know, of course, I'm for arming Ukraine, right, and give XYZ reason, but, you know, we have to be mindful of escalation and maybe, you know, hold off on Crimea and, you know, he's like, you know, the sensible centrist type um, or, you know, as per the contours of this particular debate. And so I just asked him, because I, I think it's actually worth clarifying this point when possible. Uh, okay, so what would it take for you to modify your position on favoring, quote, arming Ukraine? Because... I don't know. It means if it feels that people who support this sprawling interventionist policy then never have to actually reckon with what the fruits of the policy seem to have been, which is like mass death and destruction and so forth. Um, you know, and he says, uh, oh, well, they, the arming, it's good to arm Ukraine because look what it accomplished. It helped, it uh, enabled Ukraine to fend off Russia from that initial attempted seizure of, of, of Kyiv. So I said, okay, I mean, tell me what you think about this actually. So why is it that Porter can claim that apparent ramification of the pro-arming Ukraine position or the adoption of that policy, but but not but not bear but not accept any responsibility for any of like the heinous and you know destructive stuff that's flowed at least in part from the adoption of that policy. So like they only accept like what seems to be the good thing in their mind that the that aid allowed for for Ukraine to ward off Russia in that initial phase, but not like for the immiseration of the Ukraine population in the East or the, the uh, flattening of cities and what have you. I, I don't get why you can, shouldn't you, can't you like not have it both ways? I didn't read the thing that closely or debate with him, but I thought what he was saying was that uh, basically, like, I, I thought he was again was saying that this is what the Ukrainian people want because they want to defend, you know, they want to fight for their freedom. So I thought that was like the point that like countries do suffer, but it's like it's worth it for the cause. I don't know. He didn't really address the point directly. Um, meaning, the, the point being, why is it that this positive outcome that you're claiming is attributable to your support of this certain policy, meaning arm Ukraine, why can you claim credit for the positive outcome that you're citing here, but you bear no responsibility for the negative outcomes? Like that doesn't bear on the policy at all or your support for it. I don't get what the distinction there is and they don't really address it, but yeah. Um, so. Yeah. Okay. So what else? do you, um, yeah, what do you, uh, one last thing and then we'll go to the, we'll go to callers, but um what do you make of this uh, China brouhaha? There was a article that came out a few hours ago in Der Spiegel. And you could see this coming, right? Because even when I was at the Munich Security Conference, I was talking to people. And I'm going to write at least two things on this 
on stuff that I garnered from the conference, right, that I'm still working on. But uh, part of one of them is that, you know, I was told, and this is, you know, was partially reported publicly, but I kind of got more detail on the, the breadth of it. Uh, you know, it was, there was a really intense push. It was like a lobbying campaign on the part of the U.S. delegation at this conference, right, to go around to all, to other countries' delegations and present this theory, which wasn't accompanied by any evidence that was given to the other delegations. It was just assertion that um, China is essentially on the cusp of providing lethal weaponry to Russia. Speaker, yeah, that was in the Wall Street Journal, too. You said, I mean, it was in a lot of places, but it said the U.S. was going to, was weighing uh, releasing a, um, a, uh, like a intelligence, like publicly releasing intelligence that said uh, China was going to start helping Russia with lethal aid. It's very strange, the whole relationship with China thing. They've been, uh, the U.S. is like sort of goading China like this whole time, like, oh, right. like Biden went to see Xi Jinping and like waved his finger in his face and told him, you better not do this or there'll be serious consequences. Like they've been doing this for like a year. They ambushed, and I have I have reporting on this that I can't. <laughs> I'm not going to say yet because I have to. I'm still working on it, right? But the, what the the public part of it. So there there's a there's a private thing that I can't report yet that was another example of this, right? But the public example is of an ambush that the U.S. basically orchestrated against Wang Yi, the foreign minister, at the Munich Security Conference, where. The U.S. delegation proactively sought out a meeting for Blinken with Wang Yi and then basically just used it as a vehicle to propagate this leak, which is really just an assertion, or at least was that last, as of last weekend or last you know, Saturday, Sunday, to just propagate this leak about China – sending lethal weaponry to you, to Russia, or at least being on the verge of doing so. And then Blinken does this whole PR thing attached to that meeting that he orchestrated, um, where, you know, he, he used it to go on TV and make the, the claim as well, um, where that was the first thing that he mentioned that came out of that uh, meeting when he gave an interview on, like, you know, Face the Nation and the Sunday shows and whatever. Um, so it was really, it was really like a P, it was really like an ambush, um, rather than like any kind of actual diplomacy, it seemed, where like it's not like they were trying to like come to some sort of like mutual understanding or even, uh, you know, find some kind of like conciliatory, um, sort of status quo after the whole spy balloon incident. No, I mean, that would, it's, it seems from everything that I've understood about what happened there that it was like a deliberate kind of ambush to, to ratchet up the, antagonism and then make this kind of fairly blockbuster uh, allegation that within a matter of days um, now has resulted in, you know, leaks that supposedly give more detail. And, um, you know, this latest Der Spiegel one, so the Wall Street Journal one was just a report on how the U.S. was weighing whether to leak the information more fulsomely, right? And then this Der Spiegel one today was um, supposedly the actual details of the you know, some sort of arms deal that's in the works between Russia and China, where China is supposedly going to furnish um, kamikaze drones or something. So, yeah, so, I mean, it's uh, uh, it's heating up. There's a um, yeah. Okay, so, there, well, like, what's the possibilities that are going on here? Okay, so maybe it's actually true, right? Maybe like they have real intelligence is going to happen. Um, 
maybe they think it and it's right. It's not, it's not true. Or maybe they're just uh, sort of just pressuring the Chinese just preemptively, like not to do it or to make them look bad or to pick a fight. I'm not sure what's going on, but no matter whether they think it's true or not, the, um, the point seems to be is they think that the best way to pressure China is to like go publicly uh, and say China's doing bad things and we're telling them to stop. That, that seems to be like their belief. And it's a, it's a strange belief. I, I don't know why they would think that. Maybe they just take the measure of the Chinese and think that they're wimps. And like, if they just sort of like, but if they, if they were going to provide, you know, if they were going to provide weapons to Russia, like they would be afraid that the U S was warning them beforehand. I mean, maybe because like, you know, once you made the decision, you can't go back. So it's harder. So maybe they think by just warning them and saying, this is going to be a really big deal. Uh, they could, pre- they could pressure them. Um, I don't know. It's uh, it's interesting. It'll see how, you know, we'll see if China ever actually does this. Uh, I forgot to mention the, the financial time for another is a big deal. I, this was the first time I've seen this reported. Um, and it has, it, it claims Western and Russian sources for this, that when Ru- Putin was talking about using nuclear weapons um, early in the war, earlier in the war, that basically the U S the UK and France all sent him a message um, that they would, that the, that they would respond with uh, conventional weapons. Like they would actually strike Russia. Um, this right. this got much less attention, but it's right there in the it's right there in the article. And I found this, you know, very. Did it say they would strike Russia, or they would just they would respond, respond with conventional know, they weapons? Would respond with conventional weapons. Okay, so I, what does that mean? Maybe it means they would give Ukraine more weapons. It sounded like they no, would no, no. Well, Russia. remember, hold on. Do you remember when David Petraeus was on ABC this week in October, I think, and actually said that in the event of a use of a tactical nuclear weapon by Russia. The U.S. would launch overwhelmingly uh, an overwhelming tactical yeah. strike on Russian forces in in Ukraine, um, and people like yeah. that. I remember I like you know cited that at the time, and people were screaming that oh, David Petraeus is just he's not even in the government. He doesn't know. Well, I mean, FYI, a lot of times people who are in government use people who are out of government to transmit yeah. information. Yeah, yeah. Um, here's, the exact, here's the exact quote. Those threats were uh, blah, blah, blah. Uh, U.S., U.K., and France noticed three U- NATO's three nuclear powers delivered a joint message to Russia vowing to retaliate with conventional weapons if Putin decided to use nuclear weapons in Ukraine, according to the former U.S. and Russian officials. So it's claiming sources on both sides, Russian and, and U.S. Um, you know, if the journalists aren't making this up, this must be true because, you know, the U.S. and the Russian sources aren't probably uh, – uh, aren't probably. Uh, yeah. it's it's consistent with something that I actually heard at over the weekend. I, I do think I do think that's probably true. And this, um, this is uh, this this is inc- this is um, yeah, that, that's pretty incredible. I mean that you know this is this is pretty incredible. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean it must have. <laughs> I guess it must, you know I, I, you know this makes me you know this makes me think from Russia's perspective. It's probably. You get it out. Like, if Putin uses nukes, right, I mean, it's like, I mean, his, his, his calculation has got to be very bad at this point because, you know, the, you know, U.S. is going to hit him with convention, is going to hit him with actual, like, directly. I mean, it's, they can barely handle Ukraine. I mean, the U.S., the U.K., and France are going to, like, directly get involved. That's, like, a big deal. So, you know, he's just going to be bringing that on himself unless he wants to escalate with more nukes, which is, you know, once you do that, 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 that it's, you know, that's the scenario everyone worries about. Well, I mean, the China thing, if it is what it appears, right? And I actually agree with you that I'm not, I wouldn't dismiss that it is 
true or at least it's true in part or there, there's something like like uh, the, the the essence of it is true that china maybe is seriously entertaining doing this because i think there's been like a political there's been political pressure placed on china now to demonstrate that they won't capitulate to like the hectoring of the u.s so you could see like that some you know perversely in terms of the like incentive structure resulting in them going ahead and doing something like that they maybe wouldn't have otherwise been disposed to do and going forward with a lethal weaponry provision to to russia um which is why i think and you and you, you mentioned how they're you know, the U.S. is trying to publicize this allegation through this, you know, transparent leak initiative thing or like being um, over disclosing. Well, I think a, a possible explanation and a plausible one as to why they're doing that is because they think that they were gloriously vindicated with their groundbreaking innovative strategy pre-Russian invasion of 2000 of last year in having this information warfare campaign in the weeks and months ahead uh, where they just kind of threw everything at the wall in terms of their so-called intelligence, intelligence assessments and, and were and disclosed far more than they might have in the past. I mean, that was, that's heralded in all these NATSEC communities. Um, and I use community in scare quotes, all these like NATSEC cadres and foreign policy professional types. They think it was just the most brilliant groundbreaking strategy by the uh, Biden administration and it's like set the new gold standard for how to approach these sorts of issues. So if they think it went so well then, maybe they're trying to import it here. The problem with that and, a pro and why I keep, despite my best efforts to restrain myself at times, going back to that pre-invasion time period, is because I'm not certain that that intelligence disclosure operation couldn't have had the effect of like incentivizing a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Or creating a set of incentives impinging on like a Putin where if he, if he doesn't invade, right? If then he'll be seen as having um, bucked to or having uh, capitulated to the U.S. or been successfully pressured or bullied out of it by this pressure campaign, right? And so I'm not sure that like it necessarily <laughs> is and will have the practical impact of forestalling the thing that they claim they're trying to forestall in unleashing all these leaks. I I thought that at the time, uh, and I you know I think that sounds reasonable for. Uh, this China thing too now, um, yeah. I mean, it's it's possible. I mean, I you know they get on like all hysterical. Like we want, you know, they would say like we want, you know, we hope that he proves us wrong. Prove us wrong, you know, Putin. Yeah. I remember Blinken, like was or Sullivan or one of them was saying stuff like that. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's so condescending. It's not like you talk to a misbehaving child or something who like you don't want to put in timeout. And you hope that they prove you wrong, and they don't misbehave. But you know, they're, the they're, they're puni the, pun the punishment's being prepared for them. You, you said, you, remember, you mentioned the fl fl uh, false flag thing. Um, I think they would say is that they, uh, 
Well, I mean, uh, you know, so the, the false flag thing is interesting because they're, they're, what they say happened is that they uh, they sort of, you know, they would have looked ridiculous if they did it because they called it beforehand. So, like, anything they did would have been seen as uh, likely as a false flag. So, you know, I, I think that it probably does hurt the um, – uh, it, you know, probably does hurt. Like, like if they think the invasion is going to happen, I think. Wait, wait, wait. They, would they, what, what would they say about the false flag thing recently? They would say that basically that they didn't do it because I mean I, I saw this written somewhere. I don't know if someone claimed this or I mean I, this was something that somebody written in some media article that. Well, like, like Russia was, didn't end up doing it because the plan was exposed by the disclosure. Yeah, exactly. Intelligence. Exactly. Well, it, I mean that actually lends it. credence to my hypothesis here because it shows that they are actually responding let's say that's true that would mean that they are actually responding to and like modifying their actions in um reaction to the intelligence so it doesn't just happen in a vacuum it's actually influencing events in real time so yeah so who knows i mean it could have it could have worked it could have stopped the you know it could have stopped the invasion maybe that's what they were hoping but you know who would know for sure uh they would um uh you know you know it was Bad PR. Like once it did happen, I think it was worse for the Russians because the Russians, you know, could have, you know, they could have claimed that, you know, this was just like spur of the moment. Like there was this, you know, crisis in like Donetsk and Luhansk, and you know, they were responding to like internal events in you know Eastern Ukraine, which like nobody, you know, nobody believed that because the U.S. was saying that they're going to invade at exactly this time. So like that there would be just like this crisis there at that time. You know, wasn't very credible. So you know, it might have hurt. You know, might have made. Uh, you know, this invasion, the story of the invasion less plausible might have hurt Russia. But yeah, there was no, you know, I guess it, it's plausible. I mean, either way, it could influence in either direction. But, you know, there's no way of knowing beforehand. Yeah. So let's assume. But the China thing, I guess the China thing yeah, I was is gonna say, yeah. different because it's, it's, uh, it seems like it would only push them, you know, it would only push them to do it. I mean, look, China is smart enough to know that. Uh, you know, at this point, like, it's going to be a big deal. Like, Putin might have thought, like, in February, you know, 2022, um, that, uh, you know, like, th- there would be sanctions, but it wouldn't be that big of a deal. The U.S. wouldn't do that much as far as, like, providing Ukraine was aid. With aid. You could have believed that at the time. Like, now, after, like, all that we've seen, I think nobody would doubt that if China started providing lethal aid to uh, Ukraine, it would there would be big consequences. So China must know this already. Um, and so, like, you know, are they telling China something new by, like, you know, saying that, you know, we're, we're watching you? Um, I don't know. So this this decision does seem uh, sort of strange to me. Yeah, well, aside from whether the U.S. might be trying to sort of goad this along or whatever the strategic approach supposedly is there, I mean, what would it say if it's true – Let's just stipulate that it's true that this, you know, Der Spiegel thing is accurate and there actually is going to be this arms deal brokered where China will be, you know, basically sending Russia uh, or facilitating the uh, transfer to Russia of drones for use in, like, combat. You know, I guess akin to what is, you know, thought that Iran is doing, but probably on a larger scale. Um I don't know. I mean, this seems like a scenario that if you had spelled out a year ago, you would have been denounced as like a paranoid, right? Or a conspiracy theorist or some sort of like apocalyptic doomsayer um, because it's a expansion of like the scope of the war to a vastly new 
phase, uh, it seems to me, or like it's, um, you know, you're, you're getting to a point where like there actually is some sort of like world war scenario that is becoming more and more tangible. Um, and, you know, anybody who mentioned this, it seemed, and noted the escalatory ladder that was being ascended and how nobody was ever kind of really substantially scrutinizing the incremental ascent on that ladder. No, that was just dismissed as nonsensical, right? Or it was dismissed as alarmist or paranoid or whatever. And now we've gotten to like one of these like most extreme, supposedly paranoid scenarios where China's entering the war as a co-belligerent against the United States, essentially, which would be wild. I mean, that's like a almost unbelievable thing to have come about. So I don't know. I'm just trying to think through what to really make of it in the event that it actually does happen. Yeah. Yeah, it would be a big escalation of China and probably makes the invasion of uh, Taiwan... uh, it's a, it would be a sign, more likely, right? You know, if if you were China and you were going to invade Taiwan, you would just say, "Screw it, we got to have Russia do as well as possible to sort of distract the West," because you know that the West is going to have a freakout once that happens, right? Um, you know, if, if China did go in on Russia, now that I think about it, I think my estimation of like a war on Taiwan in the next few years would go up significantly. I, I never thought it was that likely, but I would I would think it was much more likely if they were going to Russia. Yeah, you know, I I, I talked to um, there was one person who I talked to at this Munich Security Conference who was anomalous in that he was more cynical or jaded toward some of like the consensus viewpoints at this conference than like the average attendee. Where they're, I mean, for the most part, the average person there is like one of these security establishment people who's like just totally ideologically blinkered and like bleeding about the rules-based international order and democracy is on the line in Ukraine, you know, the, the standard pablum. And this person I spoke to was like, you know, kind of jaded and cynical on the, on all that and like sort of recognized some of the bullshit that was being uh, peddled. Uh, but uh, e- even they actually did think, given their experience, that a Taiwan invasion is almost a sure thing at some point relatively soon. And I doubt that person would have, and that, that person saying that was like kind of against interest for them because it would have like different professional implications potentially. Um, I don't know. I mean, I I feel like if I were, let's say that, let's just stipulate that China does intend to, at some point, like within the relatively near future, forcibly seize full control of Taiwan. Wouldn't you want to do that now as quickly as possible, given that the United States is like ramping up its supposed deterrence beyond any prior precedent? With Maybe, but I also hear I also hear that China. From what I hear, China is building up its navy, so it still needs time. And uh, from I talked to Chris Nicholson about this, and he says. Uh, uh, there's a date, but like people who pay attention to these things say we're like China's military power relative to the U.S. Uh, will reach its peak. And it's still a few years off. It's like 2025 or 2027 or something. But, yeah, they're, they're building the Navy for, specifically for this war. So that that could be what the wait is for. At the same time, though, given the unprecedented infusion of 
Yeah, weaponry. That would be a thing too. They that's like, you know, it, that's like um, expanding, expanding exponentially now. Wouldn't you want to like preempt that? They probably think that they can uh, add more ships, more, you know, at a quicker rate than the U.S. is going to support Taiwan if they're really focused for it. Maybe, you know, that could be their calculation. Yeah, I mean, it was really, it was not covered anywhere near enough what provisions were were in that latest National Defense Authorization yeah. Act regarding Taiwan. Who knows it's like, you know, it's like Ukraine in circa 2015 on steroids. Like, it's, you know, pretty yeah, much who, the same theory. And I wonder what they think about, like, who's going to be the next president. Like, if they think Trump might, you know, who knows? Like, they might think, you know, if Trump is, there might be risk of the U.S. doing more. It could be a risk of the U.S. doing less. Maybe, yeah. they, you know, who knows what they're, what they're calculating there. Well, I mean, Biden's gone further than Trump in pretty much every relevant area in terms of, yeah. you know, well, national be, security policy as regards yeah, that would China. Be, that, would so. be a reason, that would be a reason to hope Trump gets back in there, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yep. All right. Uh, well, with that, let's go to... Uh, some callers. Um, and Matthew, if you're still out there, I know I saw you on the queue and I know you have uh, something to lecture me on. So come back in if you're there. Oh, Phil? Hello? Oh, no. Phil, Phil you're up now. Yep. Ah, okay. hey, Phil. I, well, I wasn't going to lecture you. No, 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 no. Sorry. <laughs> Matthew. There was a guy, Matthew, who was ahead of you on the queue and then dropped out who I saw. And I, oh, I know he okay. was going to like read me the riot act. But anyway, go ahead, Phil. Yeah, I, I, I'll try to restrain my rants. Uh, you can rant uh, at me as well if you'd like. Go ahead. <laughs> Uh, actually, I, I want to come back to something on the uh, rally last week uh, because I was interested in that. But, but uh, on, on the uh, uh, the Ukraine thing, I mean, it just seems to me it's very challenging to try to have a conversation about this because we are all, all of us, by the way, uh, whatever side you're on, infused with a variety of these narratives that you know that, that, that you know don't hold up over time. You know, so. I mean, what really happened last year, I think, uh, is only something that you can analyze uh, uh, now, <laughs> not uh, not uh, before, you know, uh, uh, at the time. So whatever people were saying at the time, I think, was uh, was molded. What, what has become clear, I think, is that the U.S. was up to its knees in the conversations prior to this, <laughs> leading up to it. <laughs> during the initiation and of course they knew that russia was going to invade that's why they were going to say it, because they had had the conversations that would have provoked it <laughs> i mean you know as we're kind of provoking or you just pointed out on the china thing i mean you're you're basically baiting them into doing something now before we do something so uh but yeah you, and, you and on that point phil just this. very quickly then you can continue but yeah I mean, you got to have a bit of humility here, right? Because think of how long it has taken for the real story or for vital bits of information to come out about previous wars or previous Absolutely. instances of armed conflict, right? I mean, I was in my when I was in my World War II wormhole a few months ago. I hadn't known this before, but it was only in 1972 that. Um, British cabinet records were disclosed showing that when Roosevelt and Churchill met off the coast of Newfoundland in, Newfoundland in August of 1941, Roosevelt said to Churchill, according to Churchill's own record that he personally composed, that the United States at that juncture would plan to, quote, wage war but not declare it in the hopes of like instigating an incident with Germany that would 
like, quote, justify opening hostilities, I think, I think was the, the term. And, like, I mean, how that would have been, would have been a massive of a yeah. revelation if it had been put out contemporaneously, right? And that was, you know, 30 years later. So who knows? Um, I'm not saying you have to just be a nihilist and not believe anything, right? But, like, just recognize how incomplete the record that we have access to now is. Absolutely, yeah. Well, and, and then you've got this uh, problem of people uh, shaping uh, their narrative after the fact. Uh, you know, Ange- Angela Merkel is the classic case on this. You know, uh, they invested uh, a lot of prestige along with Macron, uh, or not Macron, the previous uh, uh, guy, uh, in uh, in the Minsk Accords. Right? You put their reputations online, went with it seriously. And uh, at this point, she's saying uh, <laughs> that, well, we weren't really that serious either. <laughs> you know? I mean, that's just reshaping, right. you know, to, to conform to uh, uh, current events. But you knew there was you, you kind of as you look back at it, you could see some of the weirdness was you had the, some of the uh, NATO outliers trying to uh, negotiate peace, Turkey and so on and everything. And uh, uh, the U.S. and Britain uh, try, trying to undermine it. Uh, and you got to signal weird things were going on when uh, after the by the second negotiating session in the tent, uh, they had already shot one of the negotiators. <laughs> right. That's right. Yeah. On the, on the Ukrainian negotiating team. Right. Somebody was yeah. executed with yeah, the, yeah. on the on the suspicion. I don't know if this was ever it was proven or not that it was like a Russian. Oh, it's come um, out, uh, a Russian saboteur or something. Out. Right. No, no. He. he, he <laughs> They, they've re in uh, what what is it called when you uh, you know when you uh, uh, you know, force somebody out and then you rehabil- rehabilitate him. Yeah, rehabilitated. Here's the bizarreness. They've rehabilitated him. Yeah, the guy who was the killed. Ukrainian government. He is now a hero of Ukraine. Really? Okay, I missed that. <laughs> it's amazing. Wait, wait. So they just said, "Whoops, our yeah, bad." There's a big. There was the big, the big Wall Street Journal story on this. Uh, a month or yes, two. Yeah, okay. yeah, it was it was amazing. Um, you know, but, and he but, was but uh, he was it was some part of the Ukrainian government, the SBU, I think. I, I forget which one. One of the one of them like thought he was a hero who did all this stuff, and then the other one like shot him. Um, right. And then there was the I think it's the military intelligence who liked him, and I think the SBU didn't like him. And then the military intelligence was like talking to the Wall Street Journal, and I don't know if he got rehabilitated, but like those people are telling. Oh, you know what? I saw that story actually. I don't think I read it, but I, now, now that you mentioned, I, I do know. They I say, saw the report. They say he was pretty important. They say he um, he basically was the one who told them about the uh, uh, the home stall, uh, the airport that, that the Russia was going to go there, and like you know, they say he basically saved Kiev. I mean, this was they were making it out like this guy was the most you know important person. Uh, to sort of for the war effort. So uh, was there an admission that it was like an error to well, execute I mean, I him? Well, I think it seems like it depends on which part of the Ukrainian government right. you talk to. I think the, the part that shot him doesn't doesn't think so. So, uh, they, so, they, the, uh, so the, 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 the part that thought that he was a traitor, they haven't changed their view on that. Uh, there was, I, From what I remember from the story, no, there's nothing like that. Okay. Well, it's sort of bizarre. I, mean, I, 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 I thought it might have been a little bit more of that, but you may be right, Richard. I, I, uh it, but, but the point I, I was trying to make, the interesting part to me was that was the thing that triggered me right at the beginning. I thought, what the hell is going on here? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it started to make you look at this with a very uh, yeah. cynical eye. So here's the uh, um, here's the story. I'll uh, I could post, I could put it in the uh, in the um, chat here. 
But the, uh, the yeah. interesting thing... Condolences to people who don't, who uh, are going to get blocked by the paywall, which is sort of the impenetrable <laughs> on the Wall Street Journal. But, but I yeah. think there was only like eight or nine people on that negotiating team, you know? And it's, ne- it's international news. And this guy disappears. And within a day, you know he's been arrested and shot. <laughs> yeah, well, he was buried. Looks like he was buried as a hero. He was buried as a hero and it turned next to Ukraine's first. There you go. So, but but it, it doesn't say. Yeah, it doesn't say that the SBU like you know said sorry or or anything like that. Um, let me see here. Yeah, there's nothing. Yeah, there's nothing. There's nothing like that. Uh, but, well, but yeah, the, I mean, and, and I, that, that, that's just one of like a million things where like the full story is about probably fifteen percent known at this point. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but the, the amazing thing was there was almost an international blockage on it. I mean, it's the one thing you would go, "What the hell happened there?" You would think there would be someone who would write a story about it at the time, yeah. and they the, wrote the story as though it was you know someone got mugged down the street. Eh, yeah. You know. <laughs> He's, he's one of the negotiators. Anyway, yeah. Uh, yeah, we can go back and forth. Um, on the airport part, yeah, for this you also drew a story. Mr. Kiryayev, that's his name, t- his tip gave Ukraine a precious few hours to shift troops to counter the Russian assault, General Budinov said. Budinov is the head of military intelligence, so the military intelligence likes him. After a fierce battle with the <laughs> Russians, the airport was damaged beyond use uh, by the invading forces. This was that big battle. Um, and then he was you're, muffle, like, you're muffling your phone microphone. Oh, yeah. No, I put my finger there. No, it's clear that. Okay, so here's – yeah, here's – now I'm remembering, now that I'm reading it again. Um, my impression was the SBU shot him because he was actually going to make a peace deal. Like he went – like they didn't want right. it. He went well, to, uh, He was part of the negotiating team at the time, so he might have he saved the – Is that actually reported in the story? What's the – no, no, They don't say that's why he shot him. But right. see, that was my impression. My impression was like this is the theory that – What's the headline of the story again? Uh, it's, um, I mean, the, it's in the chat, so if you want it, Russian spy, the chat. hero, question okay. mark, the strange okay, death of Denis Kiryayev. Okay, now I need to read this. Well, I'm not going to read it right now, but I'll read it when we get off the call. That's, that's it. That, if that, I mean, if that is what's sort of insinuated as to the reason why he was assassinated, I mean, that's like a, that's a big piece in the puzzle, potentially. Um, yeah, and I think there are some other stories, uh, uh, that have floated around on that whole thing. Uh, but I can't think of what publications. Uh, the, the one I most saw most recently was that Wall Street Journal, I guess it was. Well, you know, the conventional yeah. sort of story when you try to ask around or even when people like will give a theory as to what actually led to the breakoff of those negoti- negotiations, and this resurfaced obviously pretty recently when that those Naftali Bennett comments came out. Um, is that, you know, uh, even though they had sort of like a tentative mutual agreement on like the contours of a potential settlement, uh, Buka happened, right? And then that just scuttled the whole thing because it was such an atrocity. That's the conventional sort of rendering now of the timeline there. And uh, I don't know. I mean, I just don't... I. T- uh, I let's just put it this way. I, I, I would... Be, be definitely interested in hearing a bit more detail as to what exactly went on there. Uh, so I don't know. Yeah, it would conform just briefly on the, on the beginning. I mean, I, I can't imagine that the U.S. at very high levels is not in conversations with Russia. Okay. And in those, you know, and that those are generally candid 
and they're related to what's going on. And if you have uh, uh, a couple hundred thousand troops moved up to the border, that's going to provoke a conversation. And uh, each side is going to get a sense of where the other side stands and act accordingly. So well, I we, know, that, we know that Burns, right? the CIA director, I mean, this was reported. Right. Well, yeah, went, you know, met, met with his counterpart in the Russian intelligence services in the fall of 2021 related to that buildup. Right. Uh, but uh, anyway, we'll leave, we'll leave that one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I wanted to come back to something I, I know you had talked about, and I, I did listen to a little bit of that. Uh, that was a marathon about. last week. That was five plus yeah. hours. I felt like an insane person. <laughs> but I did it because what can I say? I, I mean, I, I, I am insane. I don't claim to be doing this out of sanity. <laughs> but I had a very, uh, I have a very different perspective on this, and, I, and I'll tell you why. I spent forty years of my life being paid to organize organizations and communities. Okay, mm -hmm. so start as an activist. I did that for forty years. Now, there are three things you got to think about when you're going to do an event, and those things are in in order are turnout. Number two right. is turnout. Number three is turnout. Okay, it it's not a good idea to have a national event when you don't have an organized constituency. Okay? Right. These things tend to grow organically, and I would only say that you know I mean, the Port Huron statement was like 1964. You didn't see. And what was your take on the Washington. turnout at this rally? You, you know what? To be honest. I was engaged at a family event. I don't. Okay. I didn't even look back. I know people were not talking about it, so I assume it was relatively small. Yeah, I think it was relatively <laughs> small, from what I gather. I mean, the estimate that I saw was like, I don't know, uh, less than a thousand, which is yeah. yeah. And look, you, you, you know, Twitter is not uh, Twitter, and social media is not a reflection of constituency. Okay, right. uh, and uh, but but the ir irony and the, and the unfortunate part because. I'm opposed to this war. In fact, I have good words to say about Marjorie Taylor Greene because she's opposed to this war. I don't care what she is on other things. Right. <laughs> okay. I'm interested in getting uh, enough people together that is going to move the chains on this. I mean, I think that's where we should be looking. And I saw the poll today. I think it was a Fox poll, maybe, or something else. And it was, uh, you know, on the when asked in a very simple way, which is, should we be sending more? Should they have an open book or a blank check and so on? I mean, you're close to 50-50 on that right now among most constituencies, a little less in, in terms of Democrats. So that moves. It's a movable target. It's going to be a big political problem, I think, for anybody. Um, I saw uh, DeSantis today yeah. came out with what I thought was the most coherent thing. God forbid I should say something well, good Well, I mean, about I don't DeSantis, think it's going to be... But he was, I... he was coherent. And what he said was uh... that we... That we <laughs> we don't have we have a blank check and no it's not coherent i mean that's a, that's a that's a deflection the whole blank check cliche is like a straw man right because they're just using that to make this abstract seemingly skeptical point about the nature of the policy without actually oh, questioning the true nature of the policy i mean there is no uh, Blank check. I mean, when Kevin McCarthy, I've been over this, but when Kevin McCarthy initially made that statement back in September, it was immediately seized upon by Democrats and by the media to concoct a narrative around how you know Republicans are 
going soft on Putin again, and they're enthralled to Trump, because look at what Kevin McCarthy said about the blank check, and it turned out that, like, Kevin McCarthy saying the thing about the blank check did not correspond with any bona fide skepticism at all about the underlying premise of the policy, which he supported, and not just supported, but had criticized Biden on hawkish grounds for just a few months before, but then sort of, like, maybe modified his rhetorical posture a tad. Um, but I don't know. I mean, Republicans aren't gearing up to cut off aid. They're not doing anything. They've been, they've been no, in I'm not. Majority of the Congress for, uh, yeah, and as uh, you know, Richard knows this, because but at the Munich Security Conference, Mitch McConnell strode in, obviously, with his uh, red, uh, his uh, yellow and blue ties, and gave what I think is a rational statement, believe it or not, which is he said, you know, when, you, when you're talking about Republicans' support for Ukraine, forget about the Twitter chatter which is a cliche to tell people to forget about sometimes, but in this case, I think it's actually a good reminder. And forget about, like, the handful of, uh, you know, uh, outliers with a outsized platform, and look at who actually wields the power in the Republican-controlled House of Representatives and in the Senate. Uh, it's McCarthy uh, and it's, you know, Steve Scalise, Elise Stefanik, and the heads of the three central committee chairs there are the chairs of the three central um, committees that would have purview over this. Mike Turner, Mike, uh, Michael McCall, and Mike something else. There's three guys named Mike who are Republicans and who are like the most diehard hawks in the entire Congress, right? So, I mean, yeah. that's what McConnell said. Look who actually, and it's a good reminder because he's right. Look who actually wields the legislative power. And yeah. once you do that, you, you'll realize that like this idea that the Republican caucus is going to turn into this you know, tried and true anti-war coalition is just like so far-fetched as to be not worth entertaining seriously, I don't think. No, I, I don't think that's what's going to happen. I, I'm just, well, My point relating to Marjorie Taylor Greene was just that this, uh, whether or not there's a growing opposition to this war is not dependent on Marjorie Taylor Greene or Jackson Hinkle, okay? My, okay, my but I mean, is, Phil, we, don't, we shouldn't get bogged down on this because I spent, we spent, I did spend five hours on them, as, as I'm sure you know. Um, my point was never that it's somehow undesirable or corrupting or nefarious to have a broad coalition in support of one mutually agreed upon objective, which in this case would be opposing the war in Ukraine, right? Right, right. So it's not like they are, there's a, somebody who's a, you know, a John Birch Society guy there, and there's somebody who's like a Stalinist there, and their existence impugns ideologically the whole gathering. No, that wasn't my point. Right. No. My point was on what, the, what, is the, what is the organizational impetus for the event itself? Um, not that there's too broad of a coalition represented. And I don't know. I mean, I'm not, I wasn't there, and I haven't looked into how it went that closely, but, you know. I have well, seen ridiculous, I, you know, I, seen. I, I don't know, I just don't think it, I don't think it actually, there's any reason to believe really it advanced the aim that people who were advocating for the rally thought that, uh, claimed that they wanted to advance. I mean, when you have like a Russian flag flying behind a woman, I'm not saying that that, that should discredit that woman necessarily who is speaking with, with the Russian flag waving behind her. But like, if the point is to like galvanize public support for the cause, yeah, yeah, I mean, that's sorry, that's going to have an effect, most likely. <laughs> well, I'll grant you. I felt empathetic was, it's a little bit, it was very amateurish. You're right. But the, but the fertile field is there. And as cynical as DeSantis may be, or the Republicans, or anybody else 
that opines on this. Uh, they've got some ammunition on this money for Ukraine versus money here. Everything that happens between now and the next election is going to be measured against dollars to Ukraine. Well, think of, but in terms you of know, Republicans, and, I mean, and that we're, will turn popular opinion what? and crank it up a bit, and that'll make it problematic for us. You know, that's going to go a long way in uh, maybe reducing some of the ostensible skepticism of these Republicans if they feel like they, they're not just in giving aid to Ukraine, quote unquote, you're not just helping yeah. Ukraine, but you're also fighting China. Um, I think it's going to be pretty persuasive to them. Well, you're so. giving them a lot of credit. Uh, uh, if they did do that, I, I have to give them props for being assholes. So. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <whatever>. <laughs> All right, Phil. Uh, um, anyway, thanks. thanks. Yeah, and, I'm going uh, go to go to uh, Matthew since I summoned him. Sorry, John, you'll you'll be next. No, uh, no slight to you, but I, I did go out of my way to summon Matthew, so I want to. Uh... Oh, that was very nice of you, Michael. Like, I was upgraded above these these poor folks. I don't know. I feel kind of ambivalent about them. But you just got <laughs> well. So, uh, Michael, I'm going to greet your um, your um, generosity and um, favor with with two um, attempts to convince you that your thinking is off on two of these things. So, excellent. In terms of the idea that Putin expected a quick victory, I mean, first of all, I think the overwhelming bulk of the public reporting. Uh, corroborates this. This the, the um, uh, show. I can't pronounce this guy's name. Um, Shoigu. Uh, I'm not. I think he, uh, Shoigu. Shoigu. The defense. The defense minister. Yeah, yeah it's been reported. I mean, I, I don't have a clue from him, but it's been reported that this was an assurance he made to Putin, and that there was some big. We're expecting a quick victory. And then, like, like just, just imagine for a second, counterfactual. Imagine Putin had one in a week, and there were, say, 80 deaths and 200 casualties. Like, I mean, the political situation for him would have been much more viable in Ukraine. You would have, first of all, you would have had people in the press saying, it's terrible what he did, but compare this is, like, nothing compared to the crimes in the United States. Russia would make that argument. They talk about things they're talking about now, like NATO and so forth and mistreatment of ethnic minorities, and it would be easier to get the world to move on from this. It would, it would not be implausible that the world moves on from this, and the consequences are much more contained. And it would also not be implausible that Russia would retain some measure of support in Ukraine, which they basically entirely lost. I mean, if you, you actually tweeted a poll the other day um, where... ...view of Russia... I mean, that's that's an insane right. change from what was a divided. Yeah. Well, I mean, presumably they're not poll. I mean, I don't know the full methodology of that poll, and especially a poll conducted in wartime, you got to look a bit skeptically at. Uh, but like, I mean, that's shocking, though. I mean, yeah, I mean the, 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 the trend line, I'm sure, is in that direction. But like, I don't know. Are there people in? What, did it? Did they poll people in Russian-held territories? I mean, because there has to be some people in the territory of Ukraine who are still pro-Russia. I mean, I've seen them interviewed. I mean, I've well, seen exist, segments on them. So they exist. The fact that the so poll, it can't be zero, literally. Well, that's what that poll said. And what's shocking about that is, as you know, if you, and if you study the history at all, for a little bit, you know, like, like you know, 10 years ago, the pro-Russian Russian bloc and the pro-EU bloc were pretty... 
Yeah, even. Blocks and regionally, but if it's actually zero, I mean that's just unbelievable. <laughs> it's just insane. I, I would be. Sh- I, I don't think it could okay, be zero but, because. But regardless, I, I would have to see like what the actual sample was. But I know. But yeah, the trend line is. I'm sure in that direction. Zero. I don't know who was pulled. Whether people were pulled, in. I, I imagine it would be hard to pull people in Donbass. I mean, very anecdotally, right. I know a, a young woman who is who is uh, actually a refugee in the United States through uniting through Ukraine. And she's from Volnavadha, Russian is her native language. And again, this totally anecdotal is one person, but I do trust her. She's very intelligent. And she told me, like, nobody supports Russia anymore. Now, again, she could be biased or wrong. I mean, but like, I mean, it makes sense. Her city was literally annihilated. Like, I mean, how could. So is she, is she Ukrainian American? Uh, no, she's, or, she's, a no, she's, she's a refugee. She's Ukrainian, Ukrainian. Okay. Um, she, that, she always identified as Ukrainian. Like I knew her before the before the war started. Although Russia was her native language, I'm not sure how the ethnic lines work. Obviously, Ukrainian was suppressed. But she, but she, she left when the this yeah, war yeah, started. Yeah, she was, she left she's before. a refugee. Okay. But her, her city was annihilated. Like Volnavadha was annihilated. Like 95%. Where is that? The, it's in Donbass. Like 95 percent of the infrastructure. But again, this isn't. Scientific, but regardless, the main point, which I think cannot be denied, is is that a long war decimated Putin's support for obvious reasons. It's supported by this data that you tweeted the other day. A long war totally decimated the Ukrainian support for Russia within Russia because people lost their relatives, their homes. It's horrible within Russia. Yes, sorry, right, support. I just misspoke. Uh, a lot. The long war. Okay, within long, Ukraine. The long bloody war has decimated the support that existed traditionally in Ukraine. But has it decimated his support within Russia? That's no, but relevant. Like, I'm not like sure the that, reason, the true. reason I think it's obvious, first of all, including the, all the public reporting directly on this point, but it's, and also the logistics and the food and fuel supplies. But the reason I think it's obviously expected a quick victory is he clearly, I mean, do you dispute that he clearly, one of his goals politically or whatever is greater. He, he does not like Ukraine having moved away from the Russian sphere, culturally. Okay, okay, but let, let, let me just clarify something, because my point was not to deny that it's plausible to say that there, this expectation actually did exist within the Russian high command or Putin himself. You know, I do get a bit weary of uh, all these, like, psychological projections of the Putin as though we had, like, you could, like, access his mind and, like, just know with certainty what he, quote, thought um, but, you know, yeah, I mean, that is, that's, that's plausible. Um, but let me give you an example. When Biden was in Warsaw this week, right, he was introduced for his speech by Duda, the president, and Duda repeated a version of this. He said, everyone thought that Ukraine would fall in 72 hours, right? So everyone thought. Now, if he's talking just about Putin himself, then maybe that could be a bit more of a plausible mantra to be repeating constantly. But no, they narrow it to this like vast expanse of, quote, everyone. And I just don't, I think that's, again, almost certainly obfuscatory insofar as it obscures or obfuscates that there actually was nowhere near that kind of consensus in the United States anyway, which is my focus here, not like criminology because I don't have that kind of insight in the United States, the lack of belief in what it's claimed everyone believed probably you know, it plausibly informed the policy response. And that's why it's, I think, necessary not to just accept uncritically the propagation of that cliche, because it 
again, obfuscates potential aspects of the historical record that could shed light on how it is that this approach that the United States took kind of coalesced in, into existence. Yeah, I just, I, I just think, I mean, but we don't have to read Putin's. He clearly, like the essay he wrote last year, I'm not, now we'd have to, it's a bit of a stretch two years ago, so I just say that's what caused the war. I think these these ideas were certainly played a role. I think NATO played a role. I think a number of things played a role. But clearly, it's obvious, regardless of, of, of what precisely caused the invasion, clearly he laments Maidan sure. and laments the greater... Well, invasion. yeah, well, that's no mystery. Yeah, no, but... but but this, my point is, a long innovation is the worst possible thing for if, if for somebody who wants to bring Ukraine to the Russian fold because people are going to hate you. Sure. Obviously, if you kill their family and destroy their country. If if he had won in a week with 80 deaths, like fewer deaths. No, I got getting yeah. air, You'd be getting Aaron Mate saying fewer people died in, <laughs> pardon me, fewer people died in the invasion in Maidan, which actually would have been true if it was something like that. Uh, it would be like a teeny fraction of the people we killed even directly in Iraq. Like, you would get... It would be so much politically easier for him, and it would be plausible to still have some base some base of support in Ukraine the way I don't think it is today. Sure. You know, I mean, in terms of the actual, like, tactical uh, philosophy that was tr- being implemented by the initial phase of the Russian invasion, I mean, the what strikes me as plausible is something that I saw, you know, some people... Uh, you know, it was a Russian, I don't know exactly who he is, but, you know, he's, he's, he spoke English and seemed to have, like, actually insight into how the war is unfolded, who um, said that it was, and this sort of aligns with, like, what my intuition had been. I, you know, can't, you can't prove it, obviously, because, again, like, I don't have, like, a telepathic um, line into Putin's internal monologue. But uh, it, did, it did seem like it was plausible that it was, uh, the, the idea was to have a, encirclement with this like pincer movement in around Kiev, right? And ha- have it as a holding pattern, right? So not a full-fledged offensive into Kiev, which didn't happen as far as we know, in that there, there was no like full-fledged uh, incursion into like the center's governmental corridor of, of Kiev with the idea of like, you know, putting it under occupation. It was this, it was this weirdly sta- stagnant kind of convoy, right? And, and holding pattern and the, idea there seemed to be to exert like a maximum pressure campaign on Kiev, either to coerce regime change outright, or at least apply such pressure that concessions could be extracted from the government um, such that the main sort of like objectives of Russia were accomplished. And this is sort of given credence by the chronology of those negotiations that were ultimately aborted, but at least in terms of the tentative outline that was reportedly agreed to, um, you know, Russia did, I mean, did did extract the concession of Ukraine, Ukraine's military neutrality. Um, So not just, you know, not joining NATO, but having no block alliance, uh, whatever, um, and actually, Russia then also made the concession to dispatch with the whole idea of like full denazification and demilitarization. Um, so, you know, and then and obviously the invasion <laughs> and the ongoing at that time anyway, uh, pincer movement in a holding pattern was a leverage that would have 
help to extract that particular concession. Right. So I don't know. So that, that that's plausible. So to me. my under, again, I, I have absolutely no expertise on like military strategy other than like general history. But my understanding is they were trying to uh, move on Kiev and they they stopped because of uh, inadequate supplies, uh, which and, and their, the, the supply line issues and the logistics issues were in part brought on by the fact that advancing to Kiev took took much longer than they thought because of much more Ukrainian resistance. See, I'm not, I'm not sure that's quite true because they actually advanced to Kiev quickly it, in that they reached Kiev within like a day or two. Um, but obviously just reaching Kiev alone was not the objective, right? If, if you're, or if you're saying that the intent was to forcibly seize Kiev and you know, top of the government and put it under Russian control, then just reaching it obviously is not <laughs> the be-all, end-all there. It's a much longer operation that would have to be implemented. And it seems like the, there was a holding pattern sort of initiated well yeah partly due to resistance uh possibly but also because you know it wasn't it wasn't uh, geared toward being this full-fledged onslaught in the center of kiev that people now seem to think was always the intention I'm, I, again i'm not saying that that's necessarily well, because, capture, i'm not saying that that's, that's true sea, right? yeah sorry they, they did capture part of the city at one point right capture what Part of the city, like regions of. Um, I think it was. I think north, it was. I think it was only the, the suburbs. I think it was the just the outskirts okay. that were ever actually yeah, under I'm, I'm control. No, I'm no. I'm no expert in this, but I guess just the raw. And think about it this way: they never, they, Russia never launched any aerial attacks against. Well, again, central though, Kiev again, until though, October. Why would what, so that to me corroborates what what the intelligence was saying, what the what, what the contemporaneous reporting was saying. And what I think is logical, he wanted to bring Ukraine back into the Russian fold and a bloody sure. war, a bombing campaign ends that goal. Like the goal is gone now. These people hate Russia. They didn't before. Well, they did a bombing campaign. I mean, they, they, right, the, they the invasion started once he announced it with a, a countrywide okay, bombing the, campaign. But, but, the, but the casualties entailed by that, by that were, were nothing like what we're seeing now. Well, no, I mean, I, I think you're, I, I, I'm not really contesting the, the thrust of what you're saying. I mean, even if you look at the casualty figures now, I mean, the UN report, and that's, you know, the best source that I know of to go on, and they do say, you know, it's just a necessarily incomplete tally, but the, the total number of civilian deaths, and they don't even really, again, distinguish between, you know, potentially, you know, whatever number of deaths might have been caused by, you know, Ukraine-friendly fire, or whatever. I mean, they don't specify the perpetrator of the action that caused the deaths, right? Or what, you know, quote, side the civilians were on. Um, but just taking them in aggregate, it's like 8,000 deaths over the course of a year, which is like, you know, obviously anyone who's sensible would lament 8,000 civilian deaths. But, but as I understand that the UN, the UN figure is, uh, they, they have a conservative methodology and they're self-conscious yes, they about that. So, so well, other, and, and it's a good thing to have a conservative methodology because otherwise yeah, you have sure. people just like making wild. Right, yeah. Statements without but, any but real regardless, basis. It's a huge number of dead, huge number of wounded, and and like the country, even leaving everyone's affected by this. So infrastructure is destroyed, women and and uh, children, huge numbers have have fled the country. Like the economy of the country would it, it would be the country would be completely dysfunctional without our aid, as I understand it. So well, yeah, and no, and I brought up the casualty figure to bolster your your theory that like there was somewhat more of a like there was awareness that in that early phase, there should be some restraint exercise so as not to totally 
turn the entire Ukrainian populace against Russia, and that would entail being a bit like you know circumspect in especially yeah, which they around civilian were. casualties, they, which they were the initially. They, they were were initially, but then the whole you know nature of the war changed after that phase. Yeah, that was okay, but my my only point my only point is so basically contemporaneous reporting. We're, we're getting in the weeds and something I really don't know that much about, which is like the logistics of the of the Battle of Key, which I I brought up to be fair, but but certainly based on contemporaneous reporting and also based on the, the just the kind of common sense of it, like Putin, given his goal, his clearly stated goal of bringing, bringing um, by some, one means or another, bringing Ukraine back into the Russian fold, Ukrainians and Russians are one people, etc. Not saying he, that he not wanted to like annex Ukraine, but to make, to somehow bring it closer to Russia and move it away from joining NATO, the EU and so on. He clearly wanted to do that. Like, Killing thousands of them is not the way to do that. So it right. seems to me he wanted. It's commonsensical that he would have wanted a quick. No, I think that's right. Was, yeah, campaign. No, I, um, I, right. I mean, I, I think it's, I think that's very plausible that the uh, idea was initially to uh, effectuate regime change using that pincer motion as the key leverage point because you're like encircling Kiev and then either fostering the ouster of the government you know, uh, directly or like as was apparently on offing, um, in the offing in those negotiations, uh, exert sufficient pressure so as to extract like the core concessions that Russia was seeking. Right. So, yeah. I mean, I don't, so I, don't, I don't really disagree with you in the main, so, but I'm not sure how that shows me to be wrong per se. Yeah, I, I, I think, I mean, I think you understand. I just think it's much more plausible that Putin expected to quickly treat not only is there contemporary supporting on this point but i just think it would be very illogical for him to want to uh, to wage a war expecting a bloody war given his goal of bringing ukraine right. russia together or whatever or, right but but, yeah. the, but but then what is victory right because if, if, well, victory, now, if yes, victory could be but, but, but even then right if victory could be extracted concession through negotiations given the leverage with that holding pattern that that's that's much different than victory in terms of forcible conquest of Kiev, violent overthrow of the government, and Russia establishes like you know yeah, military Russia, occupation, a Belarus style state. Yeah, I mean he also underestimated. He clearly overestimated the level of support in Ukraine in Ukraine for Russia. I mean I think I think it clearly has changed since before Maidan, where it may have been quite even to, I think there is much more, there was, I mean, obviously now it's absurd, but like before the war, there was much more support for a Western move than he thought and much less support for Russia in Ukraine. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I, I just, <laughs> again, I don't want to be sound pompous, but I do try to be guided as much as possible by the like actual hard evidence. And so I, I have to admit, I blanch a bit when I hear statements Phrased as Putin thought such and such, or Putin um, miscalculated such and such, because it's just like it's almost like if you actually were just doing a strictly evidence-based assessment, that seems like in order to make that study, you'd have to have like direct knowledge mm -hmm. of his interior monologue. So if there's evidence that's like pertinent along those lines, well, we, okay, we, yeah, we let's look at it. But I don't know. I mean, framing it as Putin thought, I, I just, I mean, I find, yeah. I find annoying because I'm sure you know, there's this whole je genre of, of punditry based uh -huh. on like quasi-psychoanalysis of Putin, and it's just so tedious. Okay, but there's a spectrum, though, right? There's a spectrum. So 
you can look i'm trying to make inferences based on his publicly stated goals for what he would want so like if somebody says oh i love you know i i i I, i'm in love with this girl i want her to fall in love with me i would not given that goal i would assume he doesn't want to you know kill her or provoke disgust in her you know like so it's just kind of rationally thinking given his the goals he has stated what would he want to do now yeah i mean i understand why you'd want it to some extent but i think we have to engage in reasoning like this in the real world because we don't have expressed statements of very refined intent in some context now his, his, maybe we will but what if you're a journalist right and you're for writing something for public but, but what if you're a journalist and you're writing yeah. an article for publication that has to be like vigor, uh, rigorously fact checking well, can you just say as though it's a factual assertion no, I thought so. such and such i don't think so right I think so there are some real analyst, world there are some real world context where you can't do that analysis though and there's a difference with history like i wouldn't say this is any kind of historical fact that he, ex- unless you've got documents, like you need right. to have documentary evidence. If you're making a contention that as a historian of the, obviously I'm not, but if, if, if one were a historian of this war, if one were to make a contention that Putin expected a quick victory, um, you would, you'd have to find a document to this effect from like the Russian high command. You couldn't just make a rational choice argument. You could make such an argument, but you'd have to couch it in more, um, in more equivocal language than you, you wouldn't say this. But I think right. when you're engaged in analysis in the contemporary world, you have to do things like this. You have you can take taking statements of general intention and extrapolating through like logical reasoning. What do you, and again, we're not just doing that here. We're all, it's also supported by like there just are all these articles seeing this, right? Well, sure. Like, and, and again. In yeah, anyway, the main, in, in uh, the main, I really don't have much reason to doubt that what you're saying seems roughly accurate and so i, I mean I, I, mean, I, 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 I don't think i ever really doubt i don't think i ever really disputed this part of it i just uh, don't think he can achieve and this is why i'm actually kind of freaked freak. so i i actually so i focus on the criticism of you on this a lot which i have i'm actually frightened too because i it's hard to see a off round you know because well <laughs> Because I, I don't know, like, Putin needs to, he's not going to be able to just say, I was in the wrong and retain political office. That's not going to happen. And what goals could we could he possibly achieve now? He can't really achieve, I, I don't see how it's politically possible for you, a Ukrainian leader to say we're not going to join NATO now, the way it was possible before the war. Well, and yeah, I mean, right. Even... They, they, are, they are horrified of that, clearly. Well, even Henry Kissinger, although people flipped out about his prescriptions because supposedly he was this noxious appeaser. Even he coupled that recommendation as to a potential sort of ceasefire arrangement with a statement that Ukraine now is entitled and should be uh, permitted to join NATO. Um, yeah, I mean, I've been talking, I mean, I, I don't like the the term off ramp because it's just, you know, a cliche and maybe I'm just allergic to cliches, but, uh, you know, I've been trying to highlight this trajectory for a long time. Um, and what people really get furious with me over is that I think it's folly to focus exclusively on Putin in terms of like, whether there's a quote off ramp or whether there's like a viable scenario in which you could imagine hostilities ceasing, because I think, uh, you know, 
just as or comparably enough in importance to whatever Putin's calculus is in this dynamic is the U.S. slash Ukraine dynamic, right? I mean, there's two. It takes two to tango, right? Um, that's that's those are the warring parties, and what the U.S. is doing with its rhetoric and action, and you know, brought to a, you know, uh, brought to a new level even just this week with you know Biden going to. Ukraine for the first time, um, whatever you make of that, I mean, it is the commander in chief of the U.S. military striding into the war zone for the first time, which is, you know, not a uh, not a totally uh, subtle message being conveyed there and uh, raising even higher, like the existential stakes given Biden's rhetoric. I mean, Biden says and I actually think that, you know, and that Mearsheimer, whatever critiques you may or may not have of him. One, I think, very sound thesis that Mearsheimer has put forward that even, isn't even strictly related to Ukraine. It's related to like the public rhetoric of uh, government leaders, right? Where he actually makes the, the statement, and I think it's uh, accurate for all I know, that, 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 that like, world leaders actually don't lie about their, what their intent is or what they're planning to do anywhere near as much as people tend to think. Like, I think uh, uh, Mearsheimer comes up with one example that he has come uh, come upon throughout history as to, uh, in terms of um, a world leader just outright, overtly, knowingly lying about their stated intent, and um, it was Hitler <laughs> in the, in the uh, as regards, I think, the, the Sudetenland, right? Uh, but that's the only, like, uh, counterexample to the broad thesis that leaders just don't really lie about their intent or their motive or whatever in public, at least as regards something like a war, right? So I don't have any, I don't think there's any reason to really doubt the sincerity of Biden's at least stated belief or like when he's giving his rendition of what his beliefs are when he imbues the conflict with such existential stakes. He's saying like freedom itself is on the line in Ukraine, um, democracy itself is on the line in Ukraine. Yeah, it sounds like a bit of an array of platitudes, and it is, but I, I think he really believes it. And so in raising the existential stakes as he has, and Putin's done the same because, you know, it's, it's always a tit for tat. I mean, people, people don't like to acknowledge the escalatory dynamic here that's um, mutual and um, operates sort of in tandem. But, you know, Putin did, Putin basically replied um, or... Um, or I guess Putin came first with his speech this week, but Putin says, I think he, he said just almost verbatim that this is an existential, it's not just about Ukraine. Now this is, this is like an existential war for the, for the continued existence of Russia. So how can you reconcile those two positions? I don't think you really can, at least on their own terms, um, which is why, you know, and this is something I'm working on now um, based on the reporting I did at the Munich security conference, but I, I see a consensus congealing that at least in terms of what the ultimate goal being pursued is for the quote West, it's regime change. It just is um, not that, you know, you're going to find a policy document somewhere in Biden's desk saying, you know, I hereby declare that we're going to try to engineer regime change in Moscow, but it's like the ineluctable conclusion for like a bunch of for, for so much of the rhetoric and the policy even the policy action now that's being put out there um i mean they accused uh the, the state kamala harris and blinken on saturday form you know announced that they were formally 
making the determination that Russia was guilty of crimes against humanity. So forget like a tribunal, right? Or forget a Nuremberg trial um, where there's like some at least nominal semblance of a judicial process. You know, I know Kamala Harris, I guess, is judge, jury, and executioner because they say the determination's already made, been well, made, and guilt has been found. And so, like, okay, so then if you're saying that now the that accountability must be imposed for that, which they also say, how do you do that on Putin if not by effectuating regime change? Like, if you're going to prosecute him and then put him in prison, then you're carrying out regime change, right? I mean, I, so I think it's like the ineluctable. Uh, logical endpoint of much of what is now being advocated and pursued on a policy level, and I have other data points there as well that I can yeah. mention, but I don't want to go on too long. <laughs> so let me mention, first, a micro point is, I don't know what context Mearsheimer said this, but it seems completely wrong. He wrote I mean, a book on it. Is he talking about, yeah, he did, really, I haven't read this book, but I remember him mentioning, is he talking, I feel like this was a more circumscribed point. Was he talking about lying? It was more circumscribed workers? than I described it there. It yeah, wasn't I like lying in general, was it lying to foreign leaders or something like that? You know what, I think it's, uh, I think it actually was, now that I think about it, I should have been more precise. I'm, I'm, I think it was uh, lying to other leaders. That's actually interesting, I think, but in terms of Hitler, I mean, he lied about Danzig being the, the cause. Yeah, of that, was it. that was well. it, yeah, that was oh, it. Oh, that was yeah. it, okay. But he also lied in, in Munich. So, I mean, I mean, but, but it is, I think I'd have to read his claim, but that is an interesting. Yeah, I, I, I would have to refresh my. I think he says, I think, I think what he says, again, I haven't claim, read this yeah. book, but I think what, I think what he says, and I've heard about it, I haven't read it. I think what his claim is that leaders very seldom lie to for even the leaders who lie all the time to their people very seldom lie to like foreigners. Yeah. You know what? Maybe I, sh- I should have, I should have, I, yeah, I think yeah, that's yeah, correct. I should have honed my point. But, but, here, look, here's my point of irritation. I think people raising. Well, let me just ask you. Hold on, but, but before you go on, I mean, do you agree yeah. with me? Do you do you have any reason to doubt the sincerity of Biden when he ascribes these existential stakes to the conflict? Yeah. Look. Okay. That is. That's an interesting question. I think a lot of this. I mean, in the Second World War, for example, there was rhetoric to this effect um, about about the Germans before findings of fact had been made regarding, you know, the genocide and against humanity that had, had occurred. But forget, so were, but, but forget that though. I mean, for, yeah, when, okay, that, when, when Biden says that freedom is at stake. Well, right? I think, I think, look, I don't consider, so I don't consider at all the idea of a um, post-war order with rules to be a joke. We violated it egregiously in the war in Iraq that violated the UN charter. There's no denying that. And it hurt our reputation a lot. Kosovo, a lot. et cetera. Damn it. Yeah. As, that, that, that too. Uh, there's no, I mean, whatever moral justification one might invoke, that also violated the UN charter. But there have been far fewer wars. And flouted a UN Security Council resolution, but go ahead. Yeah, I agree. There have been far fewer wars, however, in Europe since um, the establishment of this post-war order. So I think these rules and this emphasis on the importance of sovereignty and how we can't just solve problems through annexation. There is some teeth to it, even though we have violated as, as, as say. So I, I don't think that it's all rhetorical. I think there's some ideology and there's some importance in this. That may be a description. The other, the other point. So also I'd say like rhetoric during the war doesn't necessarily match what will follow afterwards. Um, you know, you, you have to engage in rhetoric that is rather unambiguous and unrelenting in order to motivate the soldiers on your side and also um, to secure a strong political and negotiating position. You can't 
you can't look morally ambiguous when you're waging war, even though, of course, the world is ambiguous. The one point I would make is, so I am, I, I just wish somebody on the anti-war side, so I find, like, the argument that, oh, I'm afraid nuclear war, there's a non-trivial chance of nuclear war to be compelling and horrifying. I wish that somebody, Amir Shimer does this, because he's, he's a realist, he's, he, he's, like, said the U.S. is to blame, but I don't think he means in the normative sense so much as, like, um, a positive sense, like, we brought this into motion, because I think his framework is kind, is kind of about how great, great powers act rather mm. than, like, how they should act or whatever. So I think he's kind of a... He's not making a moralistic point. He's just saying this is sure. going to lead to really big... Con- but but generally speaking, the people I read, they I just find these arguments so unserious that this war is the, is about the machinations of U.S. imperialism, that Putin is only motivated by fear of NATO expansion. I'm sure he is... doesn't He's afraid of that. I'm not denying that, but... Obviously, there's ideological. There now, ideological is this is this is this too. your is this a complaint with me or it's a complaint with I don't the, know, the general the tendency of, that you're kind of just uh, summarizing? No, I think maybe with you, but I know that's such a pathetic thing to say because because we're talking. It sounds like, but I think more. I'm so I would never. I, I would never say, and I don't think I ever have ever said that Putin there, was quote, only motivated by one right, thing. There, I don't there, know what the basis for that. There, I actually see. I actually perceive some some daylight between you, but definitely like. Aaron Mate, the gray zone, much less. I don't less think he would say. I don't think he would phrase it that way either. He he told me on a call-in that while the war was illegal and wrong, he wouldn't call it aggression because it's all about NATO. Now, he would say he wouldn't call it aggression, which is remarkable. I mean, that's just absurd. Okay, like, well, I, I yeah, don't know what he said exactly, but okay, yeah, yeah, fair enough. But 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 he did say that to me, so I'm just going off okay. of, my, of my experience. But yeah, you, no, but but I see all. The idea that the U.S. imperialism is responsible for this, that, that this is all about preempt, this is all about self, potential self defense on Putin's part. I'm not, again, I'm not saying that NATO expansion isn't a fear, it definitely is. But it just, it, it seems to be so unserious. Whereas if somebody said, look, what Putin did is reprehensible, yeah, we have some, our interventions in this region haven't been wholly innocent and may have, you know, added tension, certainly did, but, like, this invasion is the huge escalation, is the huge step, the bloody seven is crazy and evil, but, but but we can't, we just have to end this somehow, even if it's through appeasement or whatever. We don't think Putin is going to, once well, we have... I mean, so appeasement is ridiculous, would be a ridiculous way to well, put it, if okay, you're actually it, a proponent of... It does of, have World War II era connotations, whatever, but it's, a, it's inherently pejorative, like, nobody, I mean, nobody okay, actually whatever. self-identifies not, as, like, I'm somebody who wants to be a peaser. I'm honestly not trying to... Yeah, no, I got you. I got you. Yeah, I just, you well, let, let, let me just respond to that. But, I think, but, but yeah. one could okay, make an argument yeah. as follows. Let me please respond, Mike. I'll give you. I'll yeah, go ahead. But one could make an argument as follows: Putin is terrible. Putin is overwhelmingly to blame compared to the United States. Like it, it, there isn't a moral equivalence. Um, he's the one who's killed all these people in Ukraine. But but we don't believe, and I don't believe this, that Putin wants to expand eastward past Ukraine. We don't believe Putin wants to annex westward <laughs> Ukraine either. But yeah, yes, <laughs> westward. Um, so, given that, let's just placate him and meet some of his demands, even if we don't think they're just, because we don't believe he's going to go westward, and we also need to avoid nuclear war at all costs, even if it means compromising our principles. That kind of argument would have much more appeal to me than, oh, this is U.S. imperialism. Which okay, like- let, let, let me let me let me respond to that because I think this or the way you sort of frame it there is emblematic of a recurrent analytical problem that pops up all the time in discussion of this conflict 
and is like ever present, which is that I would put it this way, at least as I see it, there are like two tracks of potential argumentation, right? There's the moral track and there's maybe what you would call, I don't know, the analytical track. Um, and they're, they're constantly uh, conflated, right? And I think why people get so enraged with me is because I tend to be more on the analytical track. I know that sounds really obnoxious and like I'm trying to kind of puff myself up as this like intellectual arbiter or something. That's not really how I mean it. I just mean if you're approaching the conflict as a moral crusader where your whole purpose is to denounce or to heap moral opprobrium on who you feel to be the evildoer, then you're probably going to have a bit of difficulty engaging, uh, traveling down the analytical track, which I would describe as, and maybe this isn't the, analytical isn't the best term for it, but as like more just a empirical evaluation of the nature of the conflict and its kind of multitude of contributing factors or the effects of the behavior of the parties to the conflict, right? Um, so, you know, when I've talked as I have ad nauseum about like the escalatory spiral or the escalatory ladder, one reason why people get so infuriated is because I will assert that when the U.S. takes an action in Ukraine through its policy, that it can be a contributor, and so can Ukraine itself contribute to, as an adjunct of the U.S., that escalatory cycle or the escalatory um, uh, sort of trend line. And, and people get so enraged with that because they think that it's like inherently a moral, st a, 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 a statement of moral judgment to describe a certain action taken by like, Ukraine and or the U.S. as having had this escalatory impact. When I don't, when I discuss it or when I mention it or when I try to like uh, suss out the details of such an act, it's generally not accompanied with this like fervent moral denunciation because that's not like what my whole approach is for the most part. Um... Like you could even if you if you, even if you denounce Russia enthusiastically, or even let's just down, denounce the U.S. and Ukraine uh, enthusiastically, and you like you blame one as in a black or white way or the other, in theory you should be able to bifurcate that mode of analysis and also follow a different mode of analysis where you're just trying to be an uh, kind of impartially uh, assess the, the 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 contours of the conflict, right and. Um, what action resulted in what counteraction and how, what, at what uh, rung does that bring the conflict to overall on the escalatory ladder, etc. Um, so, but because, you know, uh, passions are so intense around the conflict, I, I think, I feel like, you know, nine times out of ten, uh, those who seem to engage with me on it have no uh, ability or desire or even maybe awareness that they're, they're uh, to, to, to 
refrain from conflating that moral track of analysis with the more kind of like, I don't know, maybe empirical or impartial track of analysis. So when you're talking about like what argument you would think is defensible, Matthew, it seems like maybe the problem might be that you're also doing a bit of conflating there um, in that like you think, okay, if you denounce this action of Putin as reprehensible, then you can say such and such. Um, well, I mean, what if you're just, what if you just decline to be, to make a moral judgment at all? What if like you're not looking at it through like a moralizing lens in the first place? Can, can you then formulate conclusions about the conflict? I think you can. Of course. Um, maybe I, people I, think that's like amoral and, and reprehensible to itself, but I don't know. I think, I think it's actually worthwhile to kind of be steadfast in sort of insisting on the, you know, uh, justifiability of distinguishing between those two right. uh, modes okay. of analysis. Well, then, then disclaim- so I'm more, I'm more reacting to people who with use moralistic language to defend Russia or to okay. de- describe sure. U.S. imperialism's role in this and then drop the moralism when it comes to Russia or positively defend Russia. Yeah. And, and, and I think this is characteristic of a number of people on social media. And I, w- sure. I would put Ray Zone, Blumenthal, these people firmly firmly in that camp. You know, it, but, but if one is saying this is a... Like Mearsheimer, I wouldn't consider Mearsheimer to be with you. Mearsheimer has a conception of how great powers react. He doesn't want to have a nuclear war. And he thinks... He, he, he thinks that if you don't provide Russia this this neutrality, this sphere of influence, if you will, it's going to lash out. That is just he has a theory of how great powers work. It's not like a moralistic defense of Russia, you know. It's basically he's basically right. saying we're dumb, we don't understand how things work. You know? Yeah, I mean, I know what you're saying. I'm not going to lump. Yeah, we don't have any to specific after. individuals or like media outlets into this category because, like, I'm there a stickler a for like I'm a stickler for like wanting a direct citation of stuff to, you know, actually draw conclusions. And we don't have to do that right now. I mean, I, 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 I but I, uh, I definitely grok like the general tendency you're describing. Yeah. I mean, I mean yeah. here's, here's one good example of that that actually I think is, um, it, w- it would be accurate to, to critique in, in the way that you just did. <laughs> like when people, people talk about, oh, Russia's legitimate security concerns, right? How you should, the U.S. ought not to have infringed upon Russia's legitimate security concerns because, you know, they were clear that there was a red line to try to bring Ukraine to NATO and to, to have violate, to have, you know, pursued that anyway was a, an encroachment on their legitimate security concerns. Now, if you're talking about Russia's legitimate security concerns or its or its um, entitlement to some sort of sphere of influence from the purely realist, amoral perspective of a, a la Mearsheimer, then, then that's coherent. But I, I do see this kind of like um, concept creep where people will talk about like Russia's concer- security concerns as though they're talking about it in this like um, kind of amoral realist, uh, in this amoral realist uh, framework. But then you, you, you kind of also can tell that they're maybe unknowingly or sub or, or subconsciously conflating it with a moral argument. So, like they're, they will they're then making the leap to Russia is right to have acted right aggressively in 
um, retribution for this infringement on its security concerns, right? Which right. Um, I think is like a whole, you know, a, a similar kind of, or like a, an analogous sort of conflation of the kind I'm talking about between these two like tracks of analysis. Yeah, but you see that all the time. Like, honestly, I couldn't. Of the people yeah, you see it all the time. I agree. Of the people who, who defend Russia, other than Mearsheimer and Walt, I literally cannot think of anybody... And I would not put you in this camp. Well, they don't defend Russia, but people who criticize the war, I'm, I'm a little tired. People who criticize the war, other than Mearsheimer and Walton, I'd throw you in there. They're, I don't Three amigos. People who aren't making very moralistic cases against the United States. Who are, I don't see people making a, a realist case, which is, as I understand Mearsheimer, he's saying, this is how great powers act. We were really, we were really stupid and reckless to have tried to bring Ukraine to NATO. And it's insane that we're not trying to bring this thing to an end because this is how great powers act. And right. w- whereas I see this moralism in defense of either explicitly in defense of Russia or condemning the United States from the other people. And I think that is what rubs people the wrong way because it's like, wait a minute, if you're going to engage in moralistic language, well, in this context, the United States didn't kill thousands of people. I mean, we have many times and far more, but we didn't in this context, right? So it's sure. perverse, you know? I mean, I, I, I know what you mean. I think, I mean, I can only really speak for myself. Um, but I know that an inference will be made that I am engaging in the kind of moralism you're talking about. If I simply have an emphasis, for example, on the... U.S. policy component of this conflict as opposed to Russia. Like, just the mere fact of that being my primary focus is seen to be an indictment of me on moral grounds in that I'm, you know, implicitly somehow making a moral judgment about the United States versus Russia, even if I don't actually use that wording myself. Um which I think is, you know, obviously a fallacious accusation against me, but you can't avoid it because people just assume that if that's what your focus is, then that, like, says something about your moral intuitions. And maybe it does at, like, a base level that not all, that we can't necessarily um, access. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure, but at least in terms of my own conscious thought, that is not what I'm really motivated by. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm motivated by what I think is an There are just a lot of examples, yeah. though. I, I give just sure. two who have a big audience. I mean, you can say, oh, who are these schmucks? But they have big... Look, the age the age where media and academics have all the influences is over social media, this stuff people listen to. Even these guys at the universities are tweeting at you. So people with large social media presence with hundreds of thousands of people following their stuff have influence. Like, it's maybe bizarre, maybe lamentable, but they do. And over the overpopular discourse, you know, we're a democratic society, so that's important too. And like Jimmy Dore, Glenn Greenwald, highly moralistic cases. Aaron Mate, profoundly moralistic cases against the United States. And then either coldly, either coldly analytical cases that about Russia's legitimate interests, or uh, in the case of, of people like Blumenthal. Like outright apology. Okay, I mean, I, I mean, I don't know that I agree with you that Greenwald makes a profoundly moralistic case no, 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 of, of the U.S. Does, regarding okay, no, Ukraine. No, the U.S. does all the time, like U.S. imperialism, blah blah blah. You know. I mean, so, again, maybe uh, maybe this is 
obnoxious, but like you got to give me an illustrative example. I'm not saying you should go and find one now, but I mean, I, I mean, in, as somebody who, <laughs> you know, knows Greenwald very well. Greenwald um, about U.S. foreign policy. I don't, I don't, I don't really relate or I, I don't necessarily agree with the idea that Greenwald's comments on the U.S. role in Ukraine specifically forget like the wider questions of like imperial uh, u.s imperialism in a more abstract sense or in a more kind of overarching sense i i don't view greenwald as making a hyper profoundly moralistic case against the u.s vis-a-vis ukraine i just think people infer that given his emphasis um so it's like a it's like a species of the type of critique that they'll Level of I mean, even, if you, even if you disagree in the case of, of, of Greenwald, I have, I have examples I'm thinking of that I don't want to say because obviously your memory of, of shit you read on Twitter can be, can be um, wrong. Sure. But like, but I think you agree that there are definite, even if we disagree on specifics, and if you get into individuals and there can be issues of ego and drama and kind of some of the more petty elements of human beings, so we probably should try to avoid that. But I think you agree that there is a, a, a significant body of people who are engaged in this kind of double standard. Um, oh, no, you don't. I'm not sure. I mean, I think there are, I think there are definitely some, like I just gave you an example of that sort of like uh, conflation around the whole notion of legitimate security interests where it kind of evolves into like a moral argument right. to justify Russia's conduct rather than a realist one. Or right. A, no, they're uh, using, a, a they're, great they're power using Mearsheimer's uh, frame. They're misunderstanding what Mearsheimer's, Mearsheimer's frame. In fact, Mearsheimer at that debate, I, I can't remember the name of the debate, but he did a debate with, with Stephen Wall. He he went out of his way to the say... The monk debate, yeah. Yeah, he went out of his way to say, I, I wish the world didn't work like this, but this is how he believes the world works, you know? Sure. Um, so yeah, anyway, uh, we agree that this body exists. We may disagree about the size. Um, yeah, and, and, you know, look, I mean, does it, it doesn't surprise me that there's this similar conflation going on within that side of the discourse um, because, I mean, I, I mean, would you agree that it's like also extremely common on the roughly speaking pro-Ukraine side to oh, kind of conflate no, no, those? Mo- well, well, there you well, go. Right. So it's, it's, it's like, you know, it's not unique to any one criticism faction. Of, and, and other people, the, the people, McFall and the other guy was being against Mearsheimer, a debate made this point, like, I just think when you're talking about contemporary politics, in the case of a war you view as unjust, I don't know how you articulate that. Um, uh, I don't know how you articulate that without using moralistic language, because you're talking about people being killed, you know, for unjustifiably in mass. You know. Well, I mean, if you can't constrain your emotional reaction to a phenomenon that you're purporting to be able to describe rationally, then, okay, <laughs> that's, a, like that's, a, that's a fault, that's a fault right. of, your, of yours. But, but there's a, yeah, but there's a gap between, like, a screaming social justice warrior, how dare you recommend this book, and, like, having, you know, a moral commitment to viewing a certain war as unjust, you know? Well, sure, and I think a guy, I think a McFall and... Um, you know the the average person who would have been at the Munich Security Conference. They, they're also you know paramount examples of this conflation. You know, run rampant. I mean, they can't just they can't disentangle their sort of sort of moral 
their, their moral arguments um, and their moralizing I, 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 posture I, I, with that more analytical approach. They just can't do I it. I mean, it's, 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 it's a ubiquitous thing. I agree. You have a point. Well, you have a point here that the, the moralism can be an impediment. Uh, clearly, because like there's a conversation that is much more difficult to have. So regardless of, of you know, the, the how how one adjudicates the blame, the relative blame for this conflict. And, and I think you know where I stand. Like there still is a set, another question, which is not peripheral um, of like, OK, what is the risk that this war uh, develops into a nuclear conflict or a world war, which is not, I don't think that's negligible. Right? I don't think China is going to get involved. It seems completely far-fetched, but it could be between, Russia could get, and the United States could get into a... Well, why is war. the China thing far-fetched? I mean, why you, would China, you doubt, China, the, why you doubt China, this reporting over the past week? Yeah, you know, I've heard about China, arm, yeah, I listened to the show, and I, I actually saw the article of Der Spiegel earlier, but providing arm, the provision of armaments is not the same as, like, initiating hostilities against the United no, States. No, it's, it's becoming, a, I mean, the way I put it is it's becoming a co-belligerent to the conflict, just like the United States is, just like Belarus is, just like Iran is, just like other NATO member states are. I mean, you're a co-belligerent. That's what I, that's how I put it. <laughs> well, regard, regardless, I think that China being involved, we're caring about this and other than a completely cynical way is very far-fetched. But regardless, we agree that there's a risk of hot war between the United States and Russia, which would effectively be a world war. So, Right. That analytic, that point, and the idea that we should forestall that, even if it means sacrificing other principles and goals, you can't really have that when the conversation is so moralistic. I understand your point in that regard, but I just don't know if it's possible or desirable to completely banish the moralistic component from political discourse about in this kind. Of, I don't know. I'll have to think. Well, about no, it. I wouldn't want to banish it. I mean, I think point. I think you you can. I mean, you you. I think you know. Have a have a moral. I mean, there's a time and a place for it, right? I'm not denying that it's ever valid for the moral dimensions of a conflict to be um, evaluated and debated. Um, but you know, I, I, I do think it's way more than just an impediment. It's almost like a complete stifling impossibility, given the prevalence of that moralizing posture. Yeah. To, to really, to, I, you know, I, to, I would, to, to yeah. I would certainly agree with you, of course, that the, that the pro-Ukraine side is moralistic. Um, I think uh, we, we've gone back about this. I would just say. Well, here's, here's, here, maybe, here, maybe here's a good way for me to sum it up, sum up how I view the problem or what the problem manifests as. Right. Like almost anything that I say that pertains to the effects of U.S. policy in Ukraine, whether it's okay. contributing to escalatory spiral or whatever, will be automatically viewed by a, you know, the pro-Ukraine faction, or at least you know, the, seemingly okay. the vast majority of them, as me attempting to adjudicate blame or faults for one or the other party. Right? Mm-hmm. So no, nothing that I say can ever be like an authentic effort to <laughs> ascertain reality uh-huh. For you know whatever the moral implications may may or may not not be of that ascertainment of reality, but it's it's all it's all about me trying to dole blame to one side because that's the side that I'm a secret partisan of. Well, um, okay, yeah. so so I would say there's two groups of people. One group I'm sympathetic to. They may not be. They're just if you've. Lo- I think this is much smaller when talking English language Twitter, but I'm sure they exist. 
if you've lost like relatives or or you've you've lost your city or whatever, you know, it, you you need you don't have enough di- emotional distance from this these horrors to you know parse through the the right. um, the logic and motivations of argument. So I, I'm kind of more sympathetic to them. Then there is just people. Who you can be. I mean, I can be sympathetic to, to them too. I mean, I, I'm sympathetic people to people who have undergone genuine suffering, right. and then that clouds or no, you know, but, impedes but their ability to engage group, in this like rational analysis. I mean, I don't. Also, a group that's just like you know, there's a tribal element to this. That's, yeah. that's with all kinds of things on Twitter that aren't personally involved, but they've like found meaning in this, and you know. But I don't know. Yeah. I just think I, I, the, the only point I'd say is we're in a little circles here. I agree that the moralism on the Ukraine side does get in the way of, of questions about nuclear war and so on, but. I would just, I think we differ on this, or I don't know, maybe we're not sure what we think, but I, w- I would just give more regard to that moralism. I understand your point than, than like Amir Sharma does, or, 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 or you seem to. I, I understand. What do you mean give more regard? I would give it its due before proceeding, like rhetorically. So do a, do a whole like throat clearing prelude to sure. anything that yeah, I say? Yeah, I don't, I, it sounds like I'm tone policing. I, I guess I kind of am, but which is which is usually something I don't like and I think is if we're talking about like how dare you disagree on affirmative action you have to talk about no I don't agree with that but like there's like an ongoing hot war that was preemptive so I don't know so just denou- you know, denounce Putin no, a few times a day con- I mean I know that sounds yeah I, I think but that's what I we need to practice you know funnily enough funnily enough I made an exception I don't know if you've ever heard me describe this but uh, once the invasion was officially well, launched I actually read that piece yeah, yeah. well yeah once the invasion was officially launched, I made a, a very rare exception in that I did indulge in the moralizing mode of analysis, and I actually did, on a moral level, you know, condemn the initiation of the invasion, which is a preemptive invasion, which, I, you know, I, I don't know of a circumstance in which I would ever endorse, on a moral level, the launching of a preemptive right, invasion. Right. So I did it, and but, the, but, but if you notice, that hasn't done very much at all to insulate me <laughs> from the idea that I don't denounce whatever, whatever. Right. Yeah. Look, look, I think, I think we've gone back. I'm not quite sure how I, I actually can see the, the force in your point. I still think I'm somewhat away from me, but I, I, I can, even when I said I would give more weight to it, like it, I did see how that could be construed as rather yeah. ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, in most contexts it would be plainly ridiculous. I just think this is such a, right. like I have the example of like, you know, people on the left say, if you want to have like some opinion about race, you have to have like, right. some preface. But, but I, I think that's you have to admit your privilege about, first. I would say if you're talking about African Americans in the United States, it's different than Ukraine. Okay, well, well, let's well, let's not have a whole yeah, we're going way, race way uh, discussion. All right, Matthew, I'm going to move on to sure, uh, John. Sure. He's been waiting for a long time. All right, thanks, bye. Uh, all right, hey John, sorry to keep you uh, waiting. What can I say? I'm a I'm incorrigible. John, you might have to unmute. Bottom left, if you're not familiar. Uh, oh, you did unmute. John, I can't hear you at the moment. Uh, not sure what the issue is. Maybe if you want to look at your microphone, etc. Hmm. John, can't hear you. Let's see. Uh, John, I'm, uh, I'm going to... Okay, yeah. Yep, you unmute, you muted and unmuted yourself, but I can't hear you. I don't know what the issue is. Um, 
I'm going to put you down on the queue again and then come back. And if you can just look into what whatever the problem is and then come right back and I'll, I'll bring you up. Um, all right, so I'm going to remove you from the queue and then, John, please come back if you get that sorted out because I'm, I'm pretty sure it's on your, on your end. All right, Arashk, you're up. Uh, hi, Michael. Hey. Uh, can't believe I thought you finally got me, but... Um, Sorry. <laughs> it, it's okay. Uh, uh, I just have two questions. Uh, one yeah. of them is about China again. <laughs> I didn't want to ask about China again, but the recent, uh, like, crazy outrage that they had over China's, uh, I don't know, resolution was interesting. But the first one is, um, you know, when, uh, America kind of bullied Germany into giving, uh, tanks to Ukraine and then it kind right. of retracted itself giving tanks and, oh, we're going to give them like in a year or something. Since we were in Germany, was there any kind of outrage or anything? Because, it just seemed like such a like a raw just like f you to Germany. Hmm. Outrage? No, not really that I noticed. Because one of the sort of jarring developments is that Germany, um, which in the past would have been kind of just of a different sensibility than let's say the U.S. Um, or the U.K. or or uh, you know Poland or the Baltic states or what have you on, on some of these questions. Um, it would probably be, you know, Germany and France would be like on sort of the more Russia hospitable end of the spectrum if to oversimplify it. Mm-hmm. You know, what what's striking is how close they are and how almost indistinguishable they are um, from the prevailing sort of like more hawkish um, faction that you would have, seen probably in the past more as a distinct faction, right, as the hawkish faction, but now the hawkish faction is just the general consensus and has subsumed Germany into it. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm generalizing, obviously, uh, but, uh, you know, I just think that there's, um, you know, especially if, if you look at, like, the Green Party of Germany and the, uh, yeah, the, the foreign true. minister, this woman, uh, uh, Babak, um, you know, she's, she's just as, I mean, her rhetoric is just as aggressive as... A you know like the prime minister of Poland pretty much. She's um, really crazy on China too. Yeah, exactly. Um, and and she did an about face anyway, as a, 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 at least insofar as she's a representative of her party, given the like the manifesto that they put out and so so forth. Um, so you know, I I I didn't really hear anything or notice anything that would suggest like consternation about the U.S cajoling Germany into that tank arrangement. Um, you know, elsewhere in Germany, German society, you would hear it, right? But uh, if we're talking about, like, the very rarefied um, set that goes to the security conference, um, if, if anything, the, the consternation is going to be at Schultz, Schultz for being too, well, too wishy-washy, right? Um, so, so, no, I mean, uh, you know... I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'd be curious. To, uh, I, I didn't make a special point to like survey the, the German side uh, or the German uh, contingency there, but I, I didn't. Uh, I didn't notice anything along those lines. I, I do. I, I mean, one thing that I did conclude, um, and this is part of what I, what I'm writing about, uh, and is that there really just is this cross-cutting ideological zeal that has uh, hardened as just the default 
um, including among it's homogenous. Yeah, well, yeah, it's it's very homogenous, and but it's 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 hardened as the default even among delegations and and uh, countries represented that you know a year and a half ago you would think would be pretty distant from the more antagonistic um, elements of like the Western security apparatus. Now it's all kind of, kind of seems to be congealed into basically a, a default position given like the, um, you know, given the way that the, the ideological, uh, you know, fervor and this ideological paradigm that's been ascribed to the Ukraine conflict has sort of, sort of glued together all these previously discrepant parts of that, you know, mm-hmm. coalition. So. But I mean, I guess France sometimes does this for like, Oh, we, we just want to help Ukraine. We don't want regime change. I mean, he's trying to like do this whole channeling, this whole like um, the Gaulle thing, even though not really. You know, Macron. Yeah, I mean that's true with with Macron. I mean, it, I mean, it's, uh, every now and then Macron will make mm-hmm. the most like marginally conciliatory statement, which is like on the substance not really conciliatory at all, or doesn't mean very much, or, and it's not going to even be translated in practice to, to do anything in particular, but people will flip out as he is, uh, him as being this appeaser or he hasn't learned his lesson with Putin. Because remember, like earlier on in the war, he would, or even when the war first, uh, before the war started, Macron was one of the few leaders that actually had an open line of communication mm-hmm. with Putin. And you know, that was being denounced as like showing Macron had been like corrupted by Putin or what, whatever. And the reason why I don't think it ma- like, whatever like stray comments he does make even now matter particularly is because I mean I think France was actually the first country that announced it would be sending tanks to Ukraine from its own arsenal and there were light tanks so to say that France was sending, um, so not the main battle tanks, but it was, I think it was in early January where, where uh, France announced that it was sending it, whatever vehicle you want to, whatever you want to call this vehicle, it's in like the rough category of being a tank, and France was the first to send it, and they're still sending it, so I mean, I don't, I don't really, I think that matters much more than like, wh- however, than like how Macron personally man- uh, happens to phrase some comment about not wanting to like totally obliterate Russia, and think of like the, think of the bar, that he's apparently clearing or think of like, it's sort of, it's not that issue that now it's somehow like a radical statement and requires like furious denunciation to, if a world leader says they don't want to like fully obliterate Russia. I mean, (laughs) think about that. That's, that's a, that's a marker of how radicalized the, um, the, these, these security types have become. Yeah. Um, but anyway, isn't it crazy how, like, the Green Party, which was, like, very anti-nuclear energy, and then they were the one that kind of made Germany more dependent on Russian energy, and now they're, like, going with you back to coral. I mean, it's, like, it's kind of ridiculous how crazy and stupid their ideas are. I mean, and they're total warmongers. Yeah. I mean, the Green Party in Germany, it's, like, as best I could tell, they're just totally incoherent. Yeah. I mean, there is there is a left party, which is... You know, uh, you know, some of their members of the Bootenstag did speak at the anti-war yeah, rally outside the Munich conference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a, uh, who who are at least coherent. I mean, you have to say more mm-hmm. or more coherent anyway than the, these Green Party types. I mean, especially this woman. Um, I was, I'm not sure. I'm always not, never sure if I'm pronouncing Mine her name. Babak, Babak. I mean, look at the party's manifesto. I tweeted this, you know, like a month ago or so. In the Green Party's manifesto, there's this whole section. 
about how the Green Party stands against any attempt by the German government to send weapons into a war zone or send weapons to any sort of authoritarian uh, leader. Um, and, you know, clearly they're sending weapons into the war zone. And, the, oh, by, by the way, the Green Party is the chief opponent of that. So, you know, you know, people try to justify that as, oh, well, circumstances change is actually admirable that they would have totally discarded their stated principles and adjusted to the change in the facts on the ground. Well, I mean, I, yeah, I guess you can make that argument, but all the same, you can make the argument that they had no principle at all if they were willing to abandon it so, um, so dramatically. So, yeah, I mean, it makes no it, – it's incoherent or, or the one way to make coherent sense of it is – that there's this particular uh, kind of zeal that a Green Party member in Germany has toward the war um, on account of the war seeming to flatter their like pre-existing ideological conceptions or the way that the war intersects with whatever kind of moral ideological mission they saw themselves as being on even apart from the war, like even on a domestic Basis. I mean, so that sort of sort of relates to like why um, so some Democrats are like the most hardcore on the war, right? Well, because they kind of re- they kind of have this whole worldview that's that's sort of emerged in relation to the war, where it's not just obviously an inner Slavic dispute over a few international boundaries, right? No, mm-hmm. it's like a it's like the democracy versus authoritarianism and. Um, autocracy versus liberalism or what, ha- what, have, what have you, and that connects to their domestic preoccupations because, you know, Putin is this sort of right-wing overlord for the insurrectionists in the U.S. and Trump and all this, and that kind of yeah. obviously is a catalyst for why they have such zeal on it. Um, so, yeah, and I think there's like a variation of that for why it is that these germ, uh, Green Party uh, types are, are so so ardent. Because, you know, the, their idea in that manifesto in 2021 was they're going to have a feminist foreign policy. So the whole their whole foreign policy paradigm was going to be first and foremost guided by their um, adherence to feminist ideals or something. Yeah, yeah and, and, and look, I mean, you can, you, you, if you view Russia as this like, uh, epitome of like patriarchal society uh, or like the remnants of like patriarchal society that they're fundamentally trying to weaken the the influence of um, and you view them as like this um, you know uh, locus of like reactionary sentiments that they're then exporting around the world including into Europe then you could see like why it would be like their big ideological crusade to oppose Russia on on that ground with Ukraine serving as like a vehicle through which to, to do so. I mean, so I think that those are, that's like a component of it, but I, I don't know. I'm just, uh, I need to figure that out more actually, because I don't, I don't have a full explanation. Yeah. I mean, I think the Lib- uh, Green Party is like the ultimate shit lip party. <laughs> just yeah. a incoherent ramblings of how great they are and how amazing they are, how on board are women's rights and LGBTQ, whatever the hell and all that stuff. It's just all that nonsense. And our, honestly, at the end, it's just like neocon. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, Putin plays into this too. I mean, if you listen, if you read his speech yeah. um, this week, yeah, you know, there's a, there's like this little. There's always now it seems to be a digression about you know <laughs> gender norms and stuff, and yeah, counterposing up- himself in Russia with 
you know, uh, trends in, you know, uh, gender fluidity and, and whatever. Um, yeah, they keep on bringing up, like, um, what's her name, the Harry Potter writer? Uh, yeah, J.K. Rowling. Yeah, yeah that's right. Um, Cancel culture. Yeah, yeah. You yeah, have brought that up. Just crazy. I think Putin brought that up, actually, on in his speech uh, announcing the uh, annexation of the four Oblasts in September. I think where, so. where they were saying, like, oh, uh, they're trying to cancel Russia just like they tried to cancel J.K. Rowling. Yeah. <laughs> it's just a ridiculous thing. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I was just going to ask, since you were also in Munich, did you go to any of the kind of um, Iranian, Iranian protests or something? Um, I didn't go to any. Well, th- th- there were these Iranian pro- uh, protesters who were all assembled in the vicinity of the of the uh, conference venue. So I tried to talk to a few of them uh, a couple times, but um, I don't know. I couldn't find anybody who was really conversant in English. Um, the, I, the one guy I talked to the most, like was, it was very broken English. So I could get a little bit of a sense of why they were there uh, or like what their explanation was for what they were doing. Um, but um, it was very, it was odd because it was, you know, it was a pretty big showing of these Iranians, who were there to protest in favor of this son of the son of the Shah, who was at the conference as an invited guest in lieu of the Iranian officials, the Iranian government officials being invited because they were disinvited for the first time along with Russia. And, you know, basically what they're, you know, what the conference was doing was it was institutionally endorsing, uh, implicitly and sometimes even explicitly, Regime change in both Russia and Iran for the first time, given their elevation of these like so-called, op- you know, uh, sup- uh, ostent- you know, these like what they call uh, opposition groups or opposition leaders who would be installed in the event of regime change, such as such as this son of the Shah. And yeah, and there were there were protesters there who were you know screaming and stuff. And even th- there was even at the at the there was a pro-Ukraine protest held a rally held as well, in part to counter the anti-war rally. And even within that pro-Ukraine rally, there was like a pro-Iran regime change element within it. So it, it's just so weird how all the how these different sort of kind of intersect factions have have like converged. Yeah. Uh, well, the thing is that for the Iran protests, like there's been a little bit of division. They've been trying to kind of patch that up, but more or less uh, uh, the former Shah's son. Is trying to show himself as like the leader. I'm like the representative of the people and all that stuff. Yeah. And the other people are like, well, the protests are not over, even though over. I, mean, I think they're going to come back in a couple months for food or whatever. But generally, the protests currently are over, so they're trying to like save yeah, yeah, yeah. the and all that kind of stuff. I also had an encounter with that woman with the big hair. Masih who's Alina. sorry? Masih Alinejad. Is that her name? I'm. A, I don't even remember yeah, her the name. The one with the flower. The one with the big hair, who's like you know always the chief spokesperson yeah, for the movement on, in in U.S. media. Yeah, that's yeah. That's she. Um, <laughs> I'm gonna. Uh, I'll. Uh, I'll describe that in greater detail once I uh, finish what I'm uh, working on. But that was a uh, strange encounter. Um, I would definitely be very happy to be. With that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah. So going to my. It, let's, uh, let's just say it was. Uh, it, it got. Bizarrely and uh, uh, antagonistic on her end, after very mild and I would and I had thought, you know, reasonably respectful uh, questioning of her. Yeah, usually she responds really badly if you ask like, 
what do you want after the government? I mean, she sounds hysterical. I mean, I don't. I know that sounds sexist, uh, but I can't describe it any other way that actually corresponds with how she behaves, as I perceive it. I mean, she just has this. Her comportment is just so hysterical that it's like you can't really. It seems like you can't engage rationally. Um, but that, I, I don't know. And did she have this like tall guy? With her or not? She had a guy with her. Yeah, I don't think he wasn't that tall. He did. She did have a guy with her, though. It's funny you mentioned that. I don't. I, I couldn't. Yeah. I couldn't figure it, out who the guy was. There's a really tall guy called Sam, and a lot of time he's with her, and he's like they they call her um they call him uh, like her unofficial bodyguard or or tag dog, tag dog. That must have been him. I didn't notice him. He he was especially tall, but he did. There was a taller man with. He was like a, a man taller than her with him with her. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if that's him, but he was like a former boxer or something. Anyway, it doesn't matter. He's he's an idiot. He's like yeah. uh, Jackson Hinkle in my <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. He actually um, was trying to. Uh... <laughs> I don't know. He was like you know trying to like uh, you know almost like ridicule me for like not not being affiliated with a respectable enough media outfit, and therefore like I'm not even worth acknowledging the existence of. Like it was just like the most one like uh, the most weirdly. His, uh, obnoxious, just sort of attacks that anyone just randomly decided to direct at me. Yeah. Uh, so pretty terrible. Yeah, but seems anyway, like a jerk. Yeah. All right. Anyway, come to yeah. my second question. Um, so when China did this, uh, so they're going to put a resolution for peace with um, Russia and Ukraine, uh, and the outrage. Like, what was like since you were there? What was like the general like supposed to outrage and all that stuff against China because they went crazy in the media as if like they said they're just crazy right well I don't think that China said it was going to put out a resolution like you know at the UN or something it was just a peace plan and then she was going to give a speech on Mm -hmm. the 24th which I'm assuming is going to happen or may even has happened. I don't know. I mean, the idea was that they were going to put out some sort of peace proposal, mm-hmm. um, and then she was going to deliver remarks on it. You know, it, 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 it's met with just like instant resistance as any kind of sincere attempt to bring about a real resolution to the war, or basically, which is discounted out of hand, right? Because the, remember, the, the U.S. had it as its main purpose at the conference to poison the well um, irretrievably against China, especially vis-a-vis the Ukraine war, uh, by, by ha- doing this whole dip, um, diplomatic ambush around the supposed intelligence that had emerged around China, you know, being on the cusp of sending lethal weaponry to Russia. So mm-hmm. the, the, US, the, 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 the U.S. was, you know, already priming and many at the conference were, would have been primed anyway, but the U.S. was like, had made it its central mission to prime the attendee, attendees and the other delegations not to accept a, a sincere contribution, whatever China came up with in terms of a peace uh, proposal. So it's basically just an instant uh, dismissal. Mm-hmm. Because it does seem that America is trying to like a warm up to like going on a massive sanction campaign to China on China. Yeah, you know, like a year or so. It just seems like they're doing like what they've done to Russia for the last eight years, but to China in the next like year or so, something like that. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I think um, somehow they whipped up 
a new batch of sanctions that they're going to be announcing, you know, t- today, tomorrow, the 24th, to mark the anniversary. And they're, these are sanctions, as, as I understand, that have been in the, in the works for a while because they're like secondary sanctions in that they're trying to close the gaps in the existing sanction regime that have allowed for Russia to obviously have a lot more economic transactions than the sanctions proponents suggested would have been the case, and obviously that has buoyed Russia. It's, um, the economic impact of the sanctions has not been anywhere near as profound as had been melodramatically uh, declared at the beginning of the war. And those secondary sanctions are, I think, um, supposed to be tailored primarily at China, um, to to uh, you know to penalize China for you know these these indirect commerce ties with commercial ties with uh, with with Russia. So I, th- I think that the, the sanctions might be presented as like extra punishment for China toward India. Russia for the you know on the anniversary of the war. But I think they're more probably direct. They seem like they're at least in the way that they the they've been previewed. The sanctions seem more directed probably at China as China's you know the main economic uh, sort of uh, uh, bolsterer of, of Russia in lieu of it being cut off from economic ties with, you know, all the sanctioning countries. So I don't know. That's my impression, but we'll see in the next few hours probably. So do you think they're going to go after India and China, like including India and Brazil and all those places? Um, Go after? I'm not sure. I think... I doubt that there will be anything like the same kind of adversarial approach taken toward India that, that there has been China, at least, you know, barring any unforeseen developments. No, I think, I think it really is this China-Russia nexus that it's, it's, uh-huh. is the overwhelming focus. Um, I think there's definitely unhappiness uh, about... India not um, not budging from its neutral position um, over the course of a full year, you know it, it's just funny. I mean, I, everything we hear from you know U.S. and European officials is always this grandiose rhetoric about how you know democracy, like the the Ukraine is the last stand for democracy the world over, and the largest democracy in the world doesn't buy it. <laughs> Form of India, which is a uh, sort of ironic and kind of embarrassing, um, but no, go after them in the same way. No, I, I don't. I don't see that happening. I really, I, I, at least I don't see any real evidence that that's a likely thing to happen. But then what again, about, who knows? What about Latin America? Because there's been a left-wing shift in Latin America, and you know mm. they've been resisting at least maybe the rhetoric-wise, America's kind of anti-Russia, um, you know. Talk and all that. Do you think they're going to go after like Mexico or Brazil or something? Um, I, I, I don't know what it really means to go after. Uh, I, I think you know there, like there could be some downstream country. effects from it. Yeah, I think um, uh, you know, but Biden appeared. I forget when it was exactly. Maybe it was before the war um, started. But there was some like Amer- conference of the Americas. That was held in Los Angeles. Um, yeah. I think it's every two years or something. This thing is held, 
and it seems organization American states is that one that, uh, is that it I, I'm, I'm I think it starts with a C I'm, I'm blanking on the name of the of the uh, of the multilateral sort of entity but yeah I mean there was a lot of I mean it, it was kind of botched by by uh, by the Biden administration in that there was way more disagreement and even turmoil than you know they had had suggested would be the case and so you know I, I think I find it hard to believe that there would be like outright retaliation against like Brazil, for example, for just declining to accede to the requests of Germany or whomever to send artillery shells or something. Um, but, you know, it could have some impact on overall sort of like bilateral ties that you can't really foresee or, uh, you know, because it must have some effect, right? I just can't really say with any precision like what that effect would be but i would assume there has to be something sure uh okay well thank you for all right yep. me and i hope to get back on you with the interview you had with her. yeah all right thanks arashk uh okay going back to john who i couldn't hear last time hopefully i can hear him this time john unmute please you are up uh-oh John, it's like a comedy of errors with you because <laughs> now you're not even unmuting. All right, John going once. John going twice. All right, John, I feel bad about that because I know you waited a long time and yet I'm not sure what my option is with you. All right, Joseph. Hey. Uh, so I, I was... Um... I didn't get to call in last week, but I was following, uh, not following, to be honest. No offense. I wasn't following it closely, but I saw you were fighting. None taken. (laughs) I don't follow what I do myself. Yeah, that's a good way to be. Never, never, what what, uh, tip I got from a friend years ago, never read what people are saying about you on the internet. Well, I don't know that I always adhere to that, but... Well, I, I was going to ask you. I was just trying to make a self, uh, like a nonsensical, self-deprecating comment. But let, let's, but go ahead, yeah. Yeah, no, I was going to ask you about Jackson Hinkle. Uh oh, yeah. Here like, we go. Uh, no, no, not, not, not like I don't give a shit about personal stuff or whatever. But like, well, me neither. <laughs> like, what, what the hell is like? So, I know that guy was at the anti-war rally. Yep. And uh, there was a bunch of other internet people there, like. What would you make of that rally? Like I, you, you've you've heard me call in before. I yeah, yeah. Sympathize with the the Russian side in the conflict, but mm-hmm. I got some real like four four chan coming into the meat <laughs> space vibes from the the anti war rally. Like, why was it so retarded? <laughs> well, uh, you 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 put it. Bluntly, um, in your question, and maybe that's what it requires. Um, I don't know. I mean, I'm trying to figure out how to best encapsulate what my thought is on that because, you know, I'm sure if you were following it at all, meaning my whole brouhaha with that individual, you know, that we had like a, you know, just a Twitter exchange, and then he wanted to have a debate, so then somebody organized a Twitter Spaces session, and then we had this whole debate. I, mean, I don't know. I, I can't get inside the guy's head. I don't have 
why would I have any personal problem with him? Of course I don't. But like he just made went out of his way to like make things weirdly personal to me. Like he, you know, sent me messages like just saying that, oh, I'm I'm such a I'm such a loser because I like I'm alone on Valentine's Day because it happened to be on Valentine's Day when our exchange happened and like that was the reason. Yeah. That I expressed the views that I did because I'm like an incel or something, which is like, okay. I mean, that's if that's your theory. Uh, I mean, all right, have at it. Uh, I, I don't even know. There's like no use even trying to respond to that. Um, I mean, don't, don't you have like a super hot girlfriend that you bang all the time? Like, who gives a shit with? with some <laughs> no, I, mean, I, I don't. I don't care. Like, seriously. Uh, I mean, what, what, yeah. what, what I hate about you know what? I don't know if you've noticed this, but in the last like three or four years. Every internet discussion ends up like down there in the gutter with the Jerry Springer type of right. like, oh, oh, that kind of shit. Like, it, 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 why is everything so fucking dumb now? I mean, I think that like the, the anti-war, you know, I think that like, frankly, for the for the regime in Washington, for America itself, it's in their interest. To pull out of Ukraine. I mean, I don't know if you're following everything that's happening. The the polling in Europe is going the other way. People are, are finally, yeah. Uh, in Slovakia, there was a poll. This is a NATO country. Right. And the majority of the people in this poll said they wanted Russia to win. Not that they want to stop supporting Ukraine. Really? They will actively want Russia hmm. to win. Bulgaria. Bulgaria is another yeah, one. Yeah, I did see. I did see there's some think tank, which I took with a grain of salt um, because it was like, you know, the equivalent of the Atlantic council, but I think in the Czech Republic where they supposedly uh, did polling of these, they call them CES countries like central and Eastern Europe. And mostly they put a positive spin on the results because they showed within the, over the past year, like a, you know, a migration toward a more pro West quote unquote public opinion and a more Russia antagonistic opinion, but they did say that the one outlier among all those countries was, was Bulgaria, which actually had trended in the opposite direction, meaning had been, become more Russia sympathetic. Yeah, and also um, Hungary too. Um, you know, and and you can't say Hungary didn't suffer at the hands of the Soviet Union. So all this, all these like right. historical grievance narratives. Like, why do they work in Poland but not in Hungary? It's right. obvious that they have the U.S. government NGOs have a deeper their claws are deeper, uh, you know, deeper entangled with the Polish society than in Hungary because yeah, same with like Romania too, to maybe to a lesser extent. Same, I think. yeah. You know, I, I think though that public opinion, yes, yeah, someone would say in Germany too. Public opinion, you're seeing uh, Delinka and. Um, what is it? Uh, alternative for Deutschland? Yeah, like they, they, you know, they're 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 hitting record levels of support, mm. and they're very much about staying out of Ukraine. So, I mean, uh, is this a turning point? I mean, even in the U.S., where people have sort of stopped following politics and gone back to football, like is the, the highest rated Super Bowl in history. Uh, they. Yeah, yeah. I, don't, I uh, thought it was like a – I didn't think it was the highest rated. I thought it was – no. I don't know what it was. I thought – I thought uh, – I, I saw that it uh, outdid like the previous 10 Super Bowls or something, but I didn't think it was the highest rated. But anyway, that's – One of the highest ratings yeah. in recent memory at least. But 
nevertheless, yeah. uh, it seems that in America, <laughs> people are starting to get cold feet too. So I think we're finally, finally passing the threshold. Uh, also, like you're seeing other developments. Like I don't know if you're following China, but like they're like they're actually building up countries under Uncle Sam's nose, like Argentina. Um, they're they're giving Argentina like nuclear nuclear energy production uh, training. Uh, they're they're investing a ton of money into their economy. Um, and then also you have Saudi Arabia going to join the BRICS apparently. Right, right. Um, you know, of course you got I- Iran is is exporting like the highest amount of oil in recent history. So, like basically the world is moving on without America. Yeah, no, I th- I think that's an over. I mean, I don't know. It, maybe that's true. It's a sort of a bit of an imprecise statement, right? But all I can say is, or one of the things I can say on that claim is that I know that there have been multiple junctures over the past year where I've been told pretty much that exact same thing verbatim as to there being a turning point, the, you know, Europe and the U.S. are waning in their support for the Ukraine war efforts. You know, what about this whole idea that uh, energy prices were going to spike in Europe, and that was going to lead to like mass alienation and resistance to the war policy. That didn't really pan out. Um, well, that's because so. They I mean, I just wouldn't. Crystal. I wouldn't be. I, I, I just. Uh, I'm. I'm a little bit leery of. Now, I, I disagree. Yeah. I disagree with you there because in Germany they have massive protests against this, like all the time, like every week. They have huge protests in Germany against uh, aiding Ukraine for economic reasons. The media just doesn't cover it. But well, sure, out but are, are they majoritarian? Is that a majoritarian position, though? I, I, th- I don't think so. I mean, I think I think actually in the polling I saw around the, the tank question anyway was that um, yeah, it was kind of evenly split on to whether to send the tanks or not. So uh, I, I also yeah. I mean, here's the problem, Michael, uh, just because, uh, you know, just because you don't see the so-called democratic process reflecting uh, what people feel in Germany um, doesn't mean that people approve of what's going on because, frankly, Germany is one of the most totalitarian societies in the world. And I think the government crackdown that happened after that, like, monarchist coup or something, <laughs> like, you know, I, I've, I've heard people, spec- like, serious people speculate that that was actually, like, a false flag. That well, you know, they, there was a... Like, uh... Uh, there was yeah. a uh, Christian Democratic Union Party, CDU, whatever Merkel's party was, right? There was a guy, uh, a member of parliament who was at one of these events that I went to at the Munich conference where the uh, American panelists brought up that whole incident, the supposed monarchist coup, as an example of, you know, democra- democracy being in peril the world over, even in places that you wouldn't expect and have these ominous historical overtones like Germany. And this, the, the, the German politician just basically dismiss that instantly as any kind of meaningful event at all. He just basically just said, I mean, you could tell that he was like scornful of the way in which that incident was exaggerated as some sort of important thing when he just, he just said it was like one crackpot 
who you shouldn't even pay any attention to because that's actually heightening the influence of the crackpot. Like he didn't, in, in other words, he didn't, he, he was, you know, very much dismissive that it had any kind of broader implications. Well, the, the thing is, though, is that things like that give the system in Germany an excuse to restrict civil liberties even yeah. further. And another thing, too. Yeah, on Twitter. Um, I mean, on Twitter in Germany, I, I noticed. Yeah. There's way more stuff that is censored, meaning individual tweets you'll, oh, will yeah. just pop up and it'll say, you know, uh, you know, banned due to the request of the German government. Um, <laughs> I, you know, that's what it says. I mean, I screenshot it because I'd never seen it's stuff. Ama- like there's literally that's some what, of the German the, government like, yeah. taking every single, single, like singular tweet that yep. might offend someone. Uh, in power and uh, and having it banned, like, but Jackson Hinkle, Jackson Hinkle is, is totally censored in Germany on Twitter. Wow, I mean, yeah. I, I think I think the, I think the guy is a dope, but I wouldn't censor him. <laughs> well, here's the thing: like you know, the reason why the whole protest hasn't materialized in Western Europe is that their surveillance state and their censorship regime is far more sophisticated than in Eastern Europe. Like in Eastern mm-hmm. Europe, like if you live in like uh, Bulgaria, good luck. Good luck being like a member of the ADL or the SPLC trying to get a tweet deleted. Like good <laughs> luck with that. Like the the the, the wheels right. of the wheels of bureaucracy in Bulgaria move at about the rate that turtles fuck. So you're not gonna be, you're not able to do that. And so that's actually something I saw on the Atlantic Council or one of these uh, think tanks that were complaining that the reason why public opinion in Eastern Europe is turning on support for Ukraine is simply that people can hear the Russian perspective. And instead, instead of saying, oh, we need to give, we need to articulate our perspective and be more persuasive. No, it's clamped down on the answer, disinformation before it. Yeah, their answer is put people in prison. It traps more people, yeah. Yeah, put people in prison. Uh, I mean, so don't be, don't be, uh, don't think this is going to last forever, though. But yeah, anyway, I was just um, I just wanted to ask you about that, um, about some of that uh, anti-war protest, because mm-hmm. I, I really wanted it to to work, you know, be like the old days, the uh, Iraq war protests and things like that. But, man, uh, it's just uh, it's just, you know, I, I remember you mentioned that woman that makes the fake accusations of rape. Was like this. I mean, do you think they're do you do you think they're sinking that on purpose? Like, I, well, I don't know. I don't have any direct evidence of that. Discredit. If I was the CIA or something, and I wanted to discredit the anti-war movement or the anti-war position anyway, like the public consciousness. I'm not sure what I would have done differently. Um, unfortunately, at least in terms of there being a number of people there who I do actually personally like and have like a per- good personal relationships with, um, which is why I part of why I was annoyed by the the uh, ineptitude of the kind of organizational sort of philosophy there. Um, because I mean, I mean. Even if you say that you're sympathetic to the Russian cause, right? If the whole, if the point of the rally is to galvanize public support, right? I mean, do you think it's the best thing to literally 
and to have like your featured participants tweeting out the their uh, the, the 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 these the photos of themselves addressing the rally with the Z logo um, and saying like um, glory to Putin, which I think Hinkle said exactly. I don't know whether he's trolling or not, or if it's half trolling or if it's like a partial performance art thing. But whatever the explanation for it, I mean, really, I mean, do you think that's what you would do if you actually wanted to galvanize public opinion, if that was your intent? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's I'm not so much of a guy about how things look rather than how they are. And right. Sure. But. Right. to be able to galvanize public opinion, to be mindful of the, how things look and appear and how they're presented. The, the, basic, the basic problem I saw is, um, like, for example, like the Tara Reid thing, like, th- there wasn't a good, clear organizational structure there. Like, who made that call? And I suspect maybe it was CIA influence or something, but it could also be something as, as banal as these people open up their suggestion box to the internet. Yeah, I think that's where you're going to get really you're going to get trolled into doing stupid shit if you yeah. if you do that. Like you take oh the internet let's 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 I mean let let's be honest, Mike. I, I know you were a Bernie guy, but like. <laughs> the post, the post left is a fucking joke, and um, I don't know it, what the post left li- is. I hear people occasionally referencing that as a thing that they claim exists as some sort of like coherent ideological block or like alliance or something. But I'm I'm not really well able to fully. I'll tell you describe what it, is. What it supposedly is because I I've, I've been told that I'm a member of the post left and I don't remember signing up for any political party or anything with that name, but. Well, the, the, what it is is that they take all the dumbest parts of the right and <laughs> they conflate that with being working class, which it's not. And there's also like a weird religious streak. I don't know if you've ever read Compact Magazine. Like you well, have I'm, a, these, I'm, like, a, I'm a contributing editor of Compact Magazine. Oh, boy. Oh, I've read, I mean, it doesn't really shame, mean. Shame that doesn't, on you. Well, it doesn't mean. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't mean anything in practice, really. I just have written like two articles for them, and like they asked me if I wanted to be a contributing editor. I said okay. Well, it doesn't. I'm, I'm not like an employee or anything. And you know, I mean, yeah, are, I, there's some good stuff on there occasionally. Do, do you think that there's a future for Catholic theocracy? Combined I have no with, idea. I, with Marxist critiques, probably of not. People uh, combined with like, I mean. That, that shit is just like I, – I don't even – like why can't anyone put some money aside for a serious publication that does investigative journalism? There's no clown stuff. There's no novelty. Yeah. <laughs> there's no nothing. Why, why is there no money for that? Stuff like Compact Mag. I won't get into details. But there's no money for people making an articulate anti-war, anti-U.S. empire position – or for more state intervention, things like East well, I don't know. I feel like, I mean, I don't follow it that closely despite it being a contributing editor, <laughs> which I mean, I shouldn't admit. <laughs> but I, I feel like I've read a fairly robust cross-section of stuff on Compact Magazine regarding, like, the Ukraine war and what have you that is, is consistent with what you claim that you want. I mean, I, when I, I wrote a piece, it wasn't a long piece, really, but it was 
uh, it was in October when that whole thing happened with the progressive Democrats supposedly sending an open letter to Biden encouraging negotiations, which was a whole. Agree with, uh, uh, or you would at least find to be akin to what you're saying is is needed. Not that it was investigative journalism or anything. It was just you know right analysis. But but I, I'd love to have like a, a publication with actual like actually looking at like something like what you did when you went around taking pictures of all the cities that were ruined yeah, yeah. by the riots. Like you were literally the only person in America that <laughs> that did that, which is a, a, an absolute disgrace the state of journalism in this country. But then I see there's like millions of dollars to have like some guy, some like some black guy in Sweden, write about his Twitter dispute with some like white nationalists on Twitter. And you know, there's stuff like that, that is just irrelevant. I just wish that we could, we could actually, I know what you mean. I mean, I actually do think, I mean, I, I agree with you in that if you do want to have a publication that's primarily oriented around a different slant of an ideological uh, disposition because you feel like it's underrepresented or you feel like there's like a new sort of block that's emerging that might warrant having a publication as sort of like the you know, quote unquote, intellectual sort of center of gravity. Um, I, I do think you should invest in actual reporting in conjunction with whatever that publication ends up being, as opposed to just straight. There, there, there's a there's a dearth of in the media industry people who at least strive to do some original reporting. I'm not saying I'm like the greatest original reporter of all time, um, but at least I try to incorporate that so it's not just me pontificating or opining 100 percent of the time. And um, I don't know. I don't I don't see as much of a sort of an impetus toward that as I I would probably prefer it. And oh, by the way, you say uh, people say I'm a Bernie guy. I mean, I, I've been called that for years. I mean, okay, I voted, I did disclose that I voted for Bernie Sanders in the 2016 Democratic primary. Does that make, make me like somehow definitionally a Bernie guy for the rest of time? I don't think so. I didn't think of it that way. I thought of you know, it just as like one expression of a contingent voting preference. Uh, but when I think of post-left, I mean, I, I think of it maybe in just more layman's terms or kind of more uh, even, but you know, banal terms to reuse that word in that it's just like, People who are regarded to have been associated with the left in a more thoroughgoing sense in the past, who are now seen as having been alienated by the left or are now antagonistic toward the left and have, like, therefore developed, like, some certain common traits or, or tendencies and are then grouped together as though they have, like, they met at, some, met at like, a convention and developed a manifesto or something, which they haven't, but that's, I, what, I, I that's a, what I think. That's what I thought the post. I, I had a lot of hope for that, you know, but uh, I'm looking at the end product and it seems to be the post left seems to be like a, a, a combination or a hodgepodge grab bag of like 
incel stuff <laughs> and Catholic Catholic reaction right. and like uh, yeah. Pepe the Frog and like you know just baby shit. So like I, it's like I, I mean it's really I mean I know that there's there's very wealthy people incentivizing this wealthy people with connections to the CIA who like Peter uh, Thiel yes sir yeah incentivizing it heavily I don't want to talk you know I don't want to cost you a swimming pool or anything but you know I th- I think so I think. outside my apartment in Jersey city. So don't worry. <laughs> but there's something that really, if you want to actually pull on a thread of something of like de-radicalization of the socialist left and the alt right and stuff like that, turning it into a complete like a uh, circus, you know, you'll, you'll find that there's a couple of really wealthy people, you know, I mean, it's kind of weird, isn't it? Like a gay guy with an IVF family <laughs> funding a Catholic reactionary revival in America. There's something. There's something that doesn't add up there. Well, it, re- it really revolves around Teal, right? I mean, his and yeah. his network. I mean, or is, are there other financiers who are maybe not as cognizant of? Yeah. He's doing it for laughs, but. Um, you know, you do see that this, like, you, you see, like, there's hipsters in Manhattan with ashes on their forehead. No, yeah, I know what you're talking you know? about. Yeah, yeah. There's something going on there. It feels <laughs> super fake. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a cradle Catholic, and yep. I'll tell you right now, Catholicism is a dead end uh, for, <laughs> <laughs> for politics. It's a dead end in general. So, um, yeah, but that's all I wanted to say. I just wanted to pick your brain about the anti-war protests and it's also like a real like where's the libertarian party been for the last decade i mean uh have they have they uh lowered the age of consent yet like what what uh what have they been up to like they just pop up again out of nowhere and then they'll just go back into the the drawer where they belong the dustbin well i mean there was a whole outbreak of turmoil um when was it a year like a year and a half ago or something when that faction within the Libertarian Party, Mises Caucus, um, oh, isn't God. that it? They like staged a coup, essentially, at the Libertarian Party convention or whatever gathering they had, and um, basically took over the party. And, you know, there were, I, there were like some really heated sort of uh, factional disputes, as I understand it, within the Libertarian Party. So they've been, they've been like doing stuff. Actually, Gary Johnson in 2016 um, was liber- was the Libertarian Party nominee, and I think he got the highest share of a vote for any third party candidate since uh, at least since Nader in two thousand. Um, votes, but I don't know. They're they're out there. I mean, I I think not that I followed this that closely, but what I've seen is that the people who are running the anti-war protests were trying to frame it as evidence that they were doing overtures to like a cross ideological coalition because they co-hosted it with this people's party group, which I'm still not fully clear on what them either, but um, the people's party is like, uh, it reminds me of attempt attempt at cargo culting, like early two thousands socialist groups. 
Like it, it's it's got no audience. Like that's got no real demographic. So I'm not sure they have because at least like those socialist groups, however fringe they were or however like um, you know off putting they they were, they would tend to have like a at least a coherent ideological sort of framework. I'm not sure the People's Party really does. Like, I don't know that they avow themselves to be a socialist party, right? I think it's more meant as kind of this just anti-establishment, and which is sort of a meaningless label anyway, uh, almost like ideologically kind of experimental thing where there's like a, there seems to be like a right wing maybe component of it. I'm, I'm not exactly sure. Um, but whatever it is, it wouldn't be like a party where I would think you would have, where you would like expect to go and hear lectures on some obscure oh, yeah. part of like Marxism. Yeah, no, no, I, I, I don't think that's that's what they're doing either. But in general, though, with the post left and the MAGA right, you know, I'm again, I don't want to be too speculative. I prefer to look for evidence. But yeah, in the 1960s and 70s, like you know, the 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 U.S. government, there are actual documents that show that they did sponsor things like psychedelic drug use amongst artists, um, new age gurus. Charles and Manson MK, had some interfacing right. with the CIA. That- yeah, MK Ultra, and so did Whitey Bulger. So so did all these guys. All pretty much every big name. Yeah, they funded like these little like left left wing intellectual magazines too. I forget the name. Uh, yeah, Ramparts, I think, or was the right. it was this you know it was like a a left wing magazine. I maybe I may might be mixing that up with some other magazine, but there was definitely a magazine. Yeah, um, in that in the '60s, which was pretty well known, that was they also they also connected. they also funded Catholic de-radicalization stuff like tradition, family, and property uh, hmm. groups like that who, who are still around, by the way. But they're not they're not CIA anymore. But you know, so I, I'm starting. You know, I'm, I'm seeing a lot of stuff coming back, and I noticed that you know the U.S. government has an interest in getting all these disparate dissident types of people. <laughs> I mean, it, it just it sticks to the high heavens. Maybe it might. Maybe my tinfoil hat is crinkling. Yeah, you, know, you know, my my hunch is that the CIA. Let's say there are factions within the CIA who did want to have this sort of infiltrating effect on whatever political actors they think need to be reined in or controlled. My my hunch is that they wouldn't need to really adopt the same sort of more crude tactics that they did in the '60s because now there are so many like there are so many options for manipulating the citizenry um, yeah. where you and. direction or you know using the vast expanse of technology at one's disposal to much more imperceptively achieve whatever it is you want to achieve in terms of like influencing certain actors that like something like 
MK Ultra. I mean, maybe there's some rough equivalent of it in existence now. I don't know, but yeah, I, 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 I would think they could do they could they could do it with a lot less sort of brazenly than they might have in the 60s. Well, they could just use private intelligence firms like right. um, was it Black Cube and things like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. They, they go like and they go on like image boards and Twitter and they you know they they push they astroturf opinions and accounts. I mean. just feel like it's an AI bot typing sometimes. (laughs) Well, when the Ukraine war started in uh, for like two or three months after February 24th of last year, I was inundated with like the most trolling I probably had ever received um, (laughs) at just like a sustained uninterrupted full blast uh, for, for uh, a long time. And like, there were just these reams of accounts that were, Brand new, you know, you could see like when they started their account and you know, there seemed to be some, you know, semi-coordinated effort to just flood the zone with <laughs> troll accounts that like would target, you know, reasonably well-known figures who might have had a more countervailing take on things. Um, and I'm sure that probably does have some effect. Many people see th- this stuff. So is it CAA? I don't know. I mean, maybe it's even just self-organized because there are lots of zealots who are into waging their own little information warfare. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not too, I'm not too concerned about the CIA. I think it's more, um, it's more private, wealthy, private actors Mm -hmm. paying like private entities to just go and do this kind of stuff. And, uh, it really, it really does hurt, uh, free debate on the internet, and uh, it, it brings everything down to the lowest common denominator. Um, yeah, I think that. I mean, is is the populist moment over in your opinion? In the first place, because it's one of those like utterly tedious cliches that I could imagine being on the cover of an issue of the Atlantic where it's like, is the populist moment over? And then they have a big like red question mark that's like connected somehow to like a red uh, rendering of Trump's face. And you know, and then you have like Brexit looming in the background or something. I mean, it's just, I I hate that kind of, I would have never uttered those words as though they like meant anything. So I don't know what, if what that means, the populist moment. Um, but yeah, I mean, I do think that uh, there definitely was, if you do want to generalize, a um, something like a disruption or something like a an overturning of conventional expectations about what political outcomes were possible circa 2016, right? Yeah. Um, and so there, there, there did seem like a window of. I mean, Trump ran Pat Buchanan's campaign and won. I mean, uh, yeah. That. Well, yeah. I mean, that's one way of putting it. Uh, yeah. If Pat Buchanan had a reality show. Um, no, I, man. But I, I, yeah. I, I do, but I do think, you know, definitely as post 2016, right, as, you know, Trump kind of had to ingratiate himself into the Republican style, you know, DC apparatus and, and what, what have you, that some of those yep. three um, and, you know, 
then there was like no nothing really to to cultivate to continue kind of pressing forward with whatever o- no. opening might have temporarily emerged. Um, so, something happened. I followed it closely. Something I think happened. I don't know what around 2018 after the midterms into 2019 where Trump clearly changed. I don't know if they scared him with prison or investigations or whatever, but that was the point where Trump stopped trying. And then like his people probably invented a fake presidency called QAnon where he's winning all the time. Uh, Ezra Cohen, what was his name? Ezra or something? Cohen Watnick. Wasn't he speculated to be Q? Yeah, I mean, it could literally be anyone, but yeah. either way, like that, that, I, I mean, do you think Trump, Trump has a chance? I mean, he has a chance, obviously, but do you think that if he gets the primary, he could win a national election? Uh, who is to say? I mean, I, I know that sounds like a cop out, but I mean, does he have a chance? Yeah, of course he has a chance. I mean, he already has run for, pre- I mean, he's, won the most votes of any person on earth other than Joe Biden. Um, and, you know, all, all it takes is an economic downturn, which is still prop, you know, it seems to be potentially on the horizon. I don't know what the latest forecast is, but like, you know, you could, you could see things falling into place where, I mean, I wouldn't rule out him winning Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania again. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I, I don't pay as, close daily attention to Trump as I once did for obvious reasons, but yeah, I, no for w- the stuff that he does put out now, like that seemed to be like campaign oriented sort of uh, little video snippets or whatever. I mean, y- y- you can see that he's like uh, trying to, he's like becoming, he's making a concerted effort to like become more, more unleashed and like tapping into like different, Tapping into more kind of, I don't know, uh, like let's say dissident or maybe that's sort of a bad way of putting it. Then he did like in the second, in the last two years of his presidency. The problem is though, is that we already know, like I I supported Trump in 2016, but we already know what he's going to do once he gets into office. He's going to be Ronald Reagan. Uh, you know, I mean, that's that the, the derailment in East Palestine is he has some nerve going there. It's this regular deregulation that caused that derailment, <laughs> um, yeah. you know, and I mean, and has, so, I, I don't I don't I doubt that he's ever going to, you know, formally pledge that uh, Jared Kushner will have no influence in the White House um, if he gets a second term. Uh, dude, it's, it's a foregone conclusion Kushner. that he will. <laughs> it's not just the same cabinet yeah yeah any uh, one well, of them yeah like he's not maybe. gonna he's not gonna trump is not gonna take the the maga communists and put them in charge of the department of labor no uh, he's not gonna take uh what is it uh ted nugent and put him in charge <laughs> put him in charge of <laughs> I mean, the atf he's gonna do exactly i mean it's not even you're not even gonna notice the whole point of elections in america is to actually have a scapegoat to shake your fist at for all the problems and basically, as a steam valve, vote for the next guy. Yeah, I think the only, uh, I think, I think the only real counterintuitive cabinet pick that he made after 2016 that like would have been more in keeping potentially with him, 
having a cabinet that wouldn't have been the same for any Republican administration was um, Tillerson. And then that was that. Because I mean, he was, he was so incompetent. Trump fired him by tweet. Yes. Tillerson was awesome because he was so incompetent that he couldn't do anything bad. Like he just, <laughs> he's just <laughs> like, it was, it was an amazing, that was, you're right about that. But I remember back then we were all excited saying, oh, he's going to put, uh, he's going to make, uh, what Tulsi Gabbard, the secretary no. of state or no, we got, I never neocon, bought into that crappy neocon cabinet and he's going to do it again. And what I tell people, some of my friends is like, you know, I mean, there's fewer and fewer people going for Trump again, but if you get Trump well, once, shame on Trump. If you get Trump twice, I mean, this, this fucker. Yeah. Well, now, at least vis-a-vis the Republican primary, than he was at the same time in 2016. I mean, just in terms of raw polling, but also like the whole constellation of baked in political advantages that he has as a former president, which is like a crazy amount of his message was different. His message, of course, the message was was yeah. The message, I mean, message is necessarily going to be different because he's actually been president. Um, Right. All he did in office was cut taxes and, you know, antagonize the whole idea. That another post-left uh, axiom is that Trump didn't start any wars. I mean, the U.S. government doesn't start any wars anymore because of boots on the ground, Iraq. He did try to, like, basically starve the people of Iran to death. He murdered, like, the third... The third most important Iranian in the country literally murdered him. Yeah, uh, and uh, he, the he best tried- the, the the best was that they 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 cited as legal justification for that drone strike assassination of Soleimani, the 2002 authorization for use of force in Iraq. So like there the, you go. the that ju- that was passed to enable Bush to invade Iraq. That's what they cited as the right. legal basis for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I was just going to say though, I was it, it, this is maybe a sort of like a um, counterpoint. Um, I don't know, but his final defense secretary, who was just an acting secretary, Miller, you know him, Chris Miller, who was, he was just there for a couple months after Trump fired uh, Mark Esper. Uh, a time to uh, talk with him and interview him, actually. But the the book is more interesting than you might think. I mean, I, or at least his media appearances have been. He actually says that he actually said in an interview that he that the uh, half of the Pentagon budget should just be cut <laughs> outright. Um, and you know the the guy that he was talking to on this like you know uh, podcast asked said to him, "Well, hold on a second. Trump was in favor of increasing defense spending, wasn't he? I mean, how does that jive with the you know well known position of the president you served under?" And Miller says. Oh, sure. Would probably well, be inclined to cut it if he you. were to get another chance. I'm I don't know if that's true right or not, now. but he well, said it. I'm going to tell you right now what Trump is going to do. He's going to run on an. He's going to run to the left of Joe Biden on foreign policy. He's going to win the. He's going to win the primary. But what does to the left mean? And, well, he's going to run against supporting Ukraine, against uh, you know all these different like uh, foreign policy decisions with Russia. Yeah. He's going to run against all of that. 
And and I what disagree China? with you. That is a popular opinion. Well, with with China, all the Republicans are basically neocons. Right. Uh, but I think Trump so Trump's not going to quote run to the left. If that's the way, if that's the way you want to put it on China. Right. He's just going to not say anything about China. But you know. The- going to win the primary using partially that message and then he's going to find someone like nikki haley to be the vice president okay. um that's t- that's a typical trump man i can't believe that that he still has 30 percent 35 percent of the electorate i saw 40 elected. last poll i saw yeah i can't 40. Be- not, not that desantis is any better desantis is a bush neocon and they're all awful they're all awful at least like you know well, there was this whole there was this whole little flurry of uh, you know consternation around, or at least you know, attention given to DeSantis. I guess he gave some interview where he was first where he's asked about Ukraine for the first time in like a year, and he said something about I didn't even hear the full comments, but he said something about you know. McCarthy <laughs> did. Yeah. In September, that then got concocted in this whole nonsensical narrative. They're hoping Kevin McCarthy was like going to be like an anti-war actor. They're hoping the they're hoping the New York Times overreacts to that and says DeSantis wants to betray our allies, and then let that be the campaign without making any promises. That's yeah. the kind of thing DeSantis wants to do. That Trump does it better than anyone. But uh, you know, what one thing that makes me think DeSantis has a good chance against Trump is that he's actually mastered the art of looking like you're doing something better than Trump. Like, he's passing all of these, like, e-verify laws to make it difficult for illegal aliens to get jobs. ...going to be uh, prosecuted, but he's still looking like he's doing something. Didn't that whole Disney World um, legislation not pan out in terms of like they kind of they right. kind of made it toothless ultimately with the final version that was enacted or I, I hadn't I'm not 100 percent sure yeah no details, that's every something like that right every every big DeSantis win they all get hung up in court or they get repealed or defanged well the funniest the, the funniest um, example of that or like it, it's not quite in that same direction but in 2020 he pushed through a bill that was basically meant to crack down on like violent street Antifa protests or whatever, or, and I think like the main kind of criminal, the provision to criminal law that it introduced was heightening the penalties for shutting down traffic, right. Or for impeding (laughs) traffic. And then a couple months later, there's this outbreak of anti-Cuba protests and they shut down traffic in Miami and nothing happens yeah. to them. <laughs> Imagine still pursuing Cuba in the yeah. year 2023. I mean, like, I, I just, I, I mean, I just feel like the, the population is getting angrier and frankly getting more radical just from talking to people in, in you know, taxi drivers, bartenders and stuff. But the political establishment is is actually going back to uh, the Bible, evangelism, um, pro wrestling, pers- like personality disputes. Like, yikes! Look what Nancy Pelosi did now. 
You know, yeah, that, I mean, that the, 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 mo- the most, the most cringe. It just farted. Right. I mean, oh. the most, the, the most cringeworthy is when they try to do these like heavily personal broadsides against Biden in no the same fail. way, that, in the same way that they would have like vilified Hillary Clinton, right? But it just doesn't have anywhere near the same stick. sort of potency, right? Because I mean, who cares? I mean, nobody, nobody feels the need to like fixate angrily on Joe Biden. Yeah. Ran for president and that like he just didn't generate. And you even saw this probably manifest to some extent in the midterms. I just don't think Biden really generates the same sort of negative partisanship as, you know, a Hillary Clinton. And you know why that, even you know Obama, why? Yeah, and def- definitely Trump as well. I mean, but like Biden's pursuing like a pursuing Biden. Type figure. Pursuing Biden's family because, like, some of them are like party animals that like to bang bang two chicks at the same time. Like, you, what are you thinking? Making that your central message when your candidate and your hero is Donald Trump? Like, Trump actually was the one. That's one good effect he had is that he was able to convince people that. style like bill clinton and monica style controversy right. just doesn't stick anymore like and trump was part of the reason why it won't and so when they try to do that to biden or even dumber to like his extended family um it's just not going anywhere i mean i can't imagine how much money and time the republican consultants have spent trying to get people to care that biden poops in his pants like whatever even if it's true, <laughs> like, you know, it's just, uh, anyway. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's actually, I actually, uh, I, I read and I wrote a review of this book called The Bidens. Um, this was in late 2021. And it's a good book. Ben Schreckinger wrote it. Um, it's like a report. It's, it's. It's operated as a unit. And they, some of them, some of the members of the family obviously try to monetize the access to Biden and the family name and so forth. And it's, it's well done and it's, um, there's useful information in there. But a lot of it is like kind of, it's interesting in that it's like a constellation of relatively small bore stuff. Um, you know, basically, you know, influence peddling or, you know, basically small time monetization of, of political connections that don't seem to like, they don't amount to like any kind of real compelling incendiary sweeping narrative um, that would think it you know I don't think it I don't think it uh, lights up like the public imagination in the same way that it would have if it was a Clinton or um, well, Trump like People, people are struggling to pay their bills, man. Who gives a shit if Joe, if Joe Biden's son likes to like smoke crack and bang hookers? Who gives a shit? Right. I mean, think about it this way: for the past couple presidents, there have been within their first few years, like really sizable protest movements, or at least protest movements. Maybe some of the that were astroturfed to some degree, but had some element of like an organic rage that they were channeling, and then um, sort of projecting out into the public. So, you know, the, quote, resistance with Trump was unprecedented in its scope and intensity. Um, Tea Party with... 
tell what's still a significant version of that. Um, Anti-Bush protests are a little different. Um, maybe you could like kind of connect that to the, the anti-war, uh, anti-Iraq protests that did happen that also, you know, doubled as anti-Bush protests. Uh, but, you know, there were protest movements of one form or another for each of the preceding three presidents. With Biden, there's been nothing because um, I just don't think people are animated by him in nearly the same There's way. also people understand at this point that he's not running. He's a ceremonial president. No, I don't, I don't buy that. I know that's, oh, the, I know, I know that's, I know that's is, conventional wisdom, but I don't, you I don't think, buy You it. think 82-year-old Scranton Joe is coming up with the whole men can be pregnant too bit? Well, no, Come not on. that stuff. I mean, no, no, well, no, well, I mean, that's... He is just the this coalition manager as regards cultural stuff like that. But like for example, on Ukraine, I think it's been drastically under underrated how his personal ideological convictions are a huge driver of why the policy is what it is. I mean, I think that one of the very few things that Biden's been consistent about over the course of his decades-long career is this you know, basically ideologically zealous liberal interventionism that is especially um, especially animated by the the questions around Afghanistan because that was never his bailiwick in the first place, uh, but on. Uh, Russia and Ukraine and, and whatever. I, I do actually think there's, there's like a genuine sort of zeal there that you could trace back uh, decades. Um, you know, Biden is the guy who was deputized by George, uh, Bill Clinton and then George W. Bush to shepherd NATO expansion through the Senate because he was the one senator who was most kind of uh, consumed by that issue and made it like central to his like public life. Um, so I don't know. I think, uh, I actually do think that there is, there's something actually very significant there. Um, and this idea that Biden is just, you know, a, like a, uh, a vegetable and has no beliefs that he then translates into policy, I think is totally belied by the, the Ukraine stuff. I'm not saying that's the only factor to explain why the policy is what it is, but I think it's, it's, it's chronically underrated because people have to, have to lunch pale Joe's heart. I agree. But I, I mean, he did, he did go into, a, I mean, I think it, he did make the first trip into an active war zone in which the U S was at least not officially a party of any president in, I don't know, maybe ever. I, I don't know the full, the full uh, details, but you know, that I think that trip was, born of, I mean, in the trip to Kiev this week, I mean, I think it was yeah. born of his own personal conviction. I don't know, man. You're Q Biden over here. <laughs> no, no. Well, uh, no. Uh, anyway, good talking to you, man. Take care. All right. Let's talk to you later. All right. Let's go. And last but not least, given his it's obvious patience to wait as I ramble incoherently with other callers. Dale, are you there? Dale, are you there? Dale, if you're there, you got to unmute. Bottom left-hand corner. Maybe you can hear me. Maybe you can't. I don't know. Either way, there we go. Hey.
Hey, <laughs> what are you on in an airport hangar? And in like a okay, how's it going? <laughs> a little while since I've been on last, but uh, yeah, um, you know, it, 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 I, I always, uh, I always say whenever I'm on there, it's like. It's very cathartic because, you know, you could just have like an unrestrained rant session. Yeah, you could, you could let loose. Right. You know, I had I wasn't there. I'm in Germany, and I haven't didn't list didn't haven't heard the speech, so I didn't hear the jokes. Nope. Yeah, go ahead. Right. Yeah. Yep. I I I saw I saw somebody mention there uh, that he did some sort of trans-oriented joke or something to do with like pronouns or whatever. I, I'm not sure what the actual joke was, but something in that vein. But. <laughs> I thought you were going to say that the joke was just him saying how much money was spent on Ukraine and then was, that's the end of the joke. Yeah. <laughs> Really? Where are you guys located? Hmm. I don't know. Possibly. Uh, right now, I happen to be in Germany, <laughs> but uh, ordinarily, I'm located in, uh, uh, you know, Jersey City, New York. Jersey City slash New York, I guess. But maybe we've met. I don't know. Possible. But maybe not. Maybe I'm just have, maybe I have, I have to have like a very relatable, soothing, kind of friendly sounding voice. Yeah. It just puts you at ease. Well, I don't know about that. That's in the eye of the beholder. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
I'll just take it as a compliment that my my voice is just kind of effervescently relate, uh, relatable for you. Yep. All right. Uh, well, Dale, did you have like a more specific point to make or anything else you wanted to add? No, I got you. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the best contribution I can make in that regard is just to try are kind of manipulated and obscured in the public mind and, you know, just do, uh, again, what I, I tend to, to do um, rather than personally myself organize like a rally or something, but I, uh, I'm not going to begrudge anyone who feels that that's what their best position to do. So, yep. Well, <laughs> well, I don't know if I'm going to be running for office anytime soon, but Godspeed to anybody else who thinks that that's uh, in their future. All right. Uh, well, Dale, I've been uh, on this for uh, for quite some time, and I uh, it's another bizarrely marathon session, so I'm going to probably close it out here. Um, thank you, Dale. Thank you the, to the guy who Dale spawned, and thanks everybody else who listened to yet another yeah, – listened to yet, yet another unexpectedly – ridiculously long call-in session here, um, which, I don't know, I guess it's becoming the norm for some reason. All right, all right everybody, I'm going to uh, head out, take care, and we'll, uh, we'll reconvene soon as always. Bye-bye.